Commanders, Eagles, and Angels, this is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tyron Rama's Hard News on Friday night on BBS Radio Station One. <clears throat> Excuse me, we're grateful that you're joining us here tonight. And I hear that calling drum. So let's just take a few moments to go into our heart space set that tone for the evening. So breathe into your nose, out through your mouth, slowly and gently, or whatever breathing protocol you'd like to use. It brings you into that heart space. Let go of that dross of the day. Gather with your guides and guardians your ancestors, your spirit teams, your healing teams, whoever you like to join with that Kimi drum with. And there's a council fire it's in the center. So let's gather around that council fire in that virtual way we know how to do. Make a good circle. Very good. Now let us call in those seven galactic directions in the Mayan tradition.
You welcome from the east the house of light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us so that we may see things clearly. We welcome from the north, the house of night. May wisdom mature among us so that we may see everything from within. We greet from the West, the house of transformation. May wisdom be transformed into right action so that we might accomplish what must be done. We create from the South, the house of eternal sun. May right action give us the harvest so that we might enjoy the fruits of the planetary being. Welcome from above the house of paradise, where the star people and the ancestors gather. May their blessings reach us now. And we welcome from below the house of the earth. May the beating of the crystal planet's heart bless us with its harmony so that we might end war. And we welcome from the central source of the galaxy, which is everywhere at once. May everything be recognized as the light of mutual love. I am Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. I am Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. I am Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. All hail the harmony of mind and nature. In Lakesh, I can. I am another you, you are another me. Aho, Matakwiasin, all my relations. <laughs> hmm, so just stay where that drumbeat took you. So we take a few moments to look at the record of days in the mind tradition. And, uh, yeah, let's, let's see what the mind record has to say. We had a new moon yesterday, and it was a powerful new moon with this wave of uh, the the wave of the wind that we just went into on that portal day on Tuesday and then 
yesterday was a three con. So we have this electric seed on the new moon. And, uh, with that, and we're in that wave of the white wind, that, that wave of spirit and listening to spirit's direction. So we're planting these seeds on that new moon for this new beginning of this new moon cycle. And we got that seed, that intelligence of that seed working with us. And today is a four chick chongs. And today we're working with the red self existing snake. And uh, <clears throat> that serpent represents survival instinct and life force. And the key words for that self-existing tone are measuring, form, and definition. <clears throat> that, that four tone. So I define in order to survive measuring instinct. I seal the store of life force with the self-existing tone of form. So this day is guided by the red dragon and the occult power today is the yellow warrior. The ally is the white wizard. And the challenge today is the blue eagle. So those are the energies we're working with today. Let's look at the Cheek child a little bit more. It's a warrior aspect. And it's about remaining open to change. And so we're distinguishing between our body and our soul. And we're transmuting energy with this serpent energy gift. So we have these gifts. We have that motivation to change. That gift of instinct and body sensing. So we embrace that and we let go of any uncertainty or insecurity or any fears around intimacy or any issues about the body or any blockages by the ego as we embrace these energies on this day. And then moving on to Saturday, it's a five Kimi, the white overtone world bridger. Another warrior aspect, this world bridger. So we have the work of forgiveness with this energy and moving into a state of grace. So we embrace these gifts of being that world bridger, that bridge between the past and the future, and that gift of transmutation that comes with it. Just let go of that which is no more. Let go of the ego. Let go of any controlling behavior. Let go of that belief that life is a struggle. We don't need that. And then moving on to Sunday, a six-minute, the blue rhythmic hand. The hand is a healing aspect, so we're working with the healing of ourselves and others. Uh, So we're creating contentment and peace as we work work with the acceptance of the divinity of ourselves. We embrace these gifts of being that healer of humankind and and having that ability to open new doors. So let's let go of any distractions or any belief in inadequacy. Let go of procrastination as we embrace these energies on Sunday. And we've got that six-tone working with us, so that's that rhythmic tone, and it's just 
we just keep on keeping on with that energy and do what comes. And then on Monday, it's a seven Lamont, the yellow resonant star. And that seven tone is the resonant tone. It's that midpoint between the <clears throat> the the waves, 13 waves, the seven is in the middle and of the, of the uh, 13 tones. Uh, and then it's also the difference between the 13 and 20, the, the two fractal tones that, that we work with in the Mayan calendar, the 13 <clears throat> tones and the, and the 20 solar glyphs that will, that guide us each day in their own arrangement <laughs> of 260 days. So this Lamont energy, the Stargate, that Stargate is a visionary aspect. So we're working with the illumination of humankind and we're opening that Stargate. So we embrace these gifts of that journeying spirit, that pioneer spirit, and having the power to see beyond. As we let go of any dissonance or self-doubt, we embrace these energies on Monday. And then on Tuesday, it's an eight look, and that's the moon. So the this is an artist aspect, blue moon, <laughs> and... Uh, it's an eight, so it's a galactic blue moon. So um, we're working with that wise use of rational mind with the Muluk energy. We're accepting spirit's direction as we embrace these gifts of having that contact with spirit. We remember what our task is, and we work with universal mind as our mind. We work with telepathy in this way. So let's let go of any insensitivity, any attachment to omens, or any self-doubt as we embrace these energies on Tuesday and then moving on to Wednesday. It's a nine ox, the white solar dog. And this ox energy is an artist aspect. And the dog is all about unconditional love and healing the pain of the past. So we have these gifts of having that contact with spirit guides and that awareness of our destiny, awareness of our past lives, and that loyalty to humankind. So let's let go of any fears or any unwise use of anger as we embrace these energies. And we have that solar tone to go with it, so that's activating all the the energy of the wave. <laughs> and so let's embrace that energy and that manifestation that it brings us. And then that manifestation is that planetary tone on Thursday is the ten two and the monkey, the blue planetary monkey. And uh so the monkey's an artist aspect as well and it's about balancing work and play and paying attention to clarity of mind. So we make wise use of that magical artistry and as we embrace these gifts of that um, innocence and spontaneity, that ability to play and laugh and and keep humor in our life, laugh at ourselves. <laughs> As we let go of any insensitivity or any jadedness or any resistance to compassion or any mistrust, let go of all that. And then on Friday when we come back, it'll be 11 Ed, 
a yellow spectral human. And um, that's and we are at the eve of the equinox at this point. That's the 23rd of September, and on the 24th is the equinox, I believe. No, it's the 22nd is the uh, Friday, and then Saturday on the 23rd is the equinox. So <clears throat> let's look at this energy of of Ebb, the yellow spectral human. It's that that eleven tone is about letting go what no longer serves us, and what a good day to do that as we let go of the summer, embrace the fall, and uh, make cooler weather being among us, and uh, being that human. So that human aspect is the healer. And it's about the enlightenment of humankind. So we're activating cosmic consciousness with this energy as we attune to spirit. We embrace these gifts of being that human servant warrior and that we are the gift of abundance that comes with that. And then that contact with other dimension that also is part of that picture as we expand our lives into the fifth dimension and beyond. So we embrace these energies on Friday. And the other thing I would like to mention that in the moon calendar, um, on Wednesday and Friday and Saturday are all ember days. And ember days are these days. And it's interesting, it's in that new moon territory. And that's always when we plant seeds and, and, and give life and and Ember Days are kind of like, this is where you weed out what no longer serves you. <laughs> and so you can you can successfully weed those things out of your life. And it's good to remember these Ember Days for exactly that pur- purpose. If there's something you're wanting to let go of, these days are good days to do it, the Ember Days. And, the, and it's mostly made for farmers and and this is a time when you rogue out those things that don't need to be where they are and make those decisions and make that intention that you don't want you here. <laughs> and uh, that's a good time to succeed at being able to do that. So those are the kinds of tasks that come forward on those days. So that's Ember Days. Anyway, that's the week ahead in the Mayan... <clears throat> Book of Days, Record of Days, and uh, I'm going to shift my hat now as we are listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen, that we can gather here each week on this radio program, the best radio in the land, bbsradio.com, and we have fees each week, and uh, we got behind in February because of car issues, and we're catching up to that, but we just caught up to August, so we're Kind of behind in September. This is the third week in September. The first two weeks, we still haven't paid anything yet. Um, so we're paying $355 a week in September. So that means that we're $710 behind and then need another 355 But we have $76 towards that. So it's not, it's coming out to 900 and $89, and that sounds like a lot, but we're just um, catching up and making things happen the way they need to, and this is a time to be extra generous as we can, 
and definitely a time to take action as we can. If each of us can pay some, it makes a lot of difference. And then as those of us who can't pay more, this is a good time to pay a little extra. So here's how we do it. We go into our heart space and see what is ours to give. And then go to bbsradio.com. And we access our account by going to the menu on the on that home page, and you'll see it on, on the schedule. Schedule for BBS Radio 1 and the schedule for BBS Radio 2. This program is on Radio Station 1. And we also have a Thursday night program on Radio Station 1. So you're looking at the 8 o'clock hour. These are central times. You'll find it on Thursday night, a night at the round table with the panel. And tonight, at the 8 o'clock hour, you'll see the listing for this program. The hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. So as you click on those icons, one or the other or both, <laughs> and it depends on how you want to do it. And, yeah, there you can make that donation in any amount. So thank you for taking that action. We're so grateful. We have a show on Friday, on Saturdays as well, and it's on radio station two. It's a 10-hour program. It starts at 3.30 Central Time, and you'll see that listed on the radio station two schedule at 3.30 hour, and it is the true history, history, and Macera, our galactic origins with Tara and Rama. So as you click on that icon, that'll take you to our account as well, and there, using your bank card, you can make a donation in any amount. So we're so grateful for you taking this action and participating in this way. The 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. <clears throat> so much gratitude. So we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And they don't need as much this week, so this does make it a good time to work with the, the radio bill a bit, a bit extra as we can. So <clears throat> what they need this week is just money for their living expenses, which is $200. And that helps them buy the gas, and I think the gas is going up again. <laughs> so as is everything at this moment, that's the way it is. So we know how to be on the skinny and do our best, and all of your energy and assistance helps a great deal. So lots of gratitude for you assisting Tart and Robin. Here's how we make a donation to to Rama's PayPal account, or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account, I should say. So you go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net, and on the homepage, you can click on that menu grid, and their menu will drop down and near the bottom of that list, and I think there's 40-some items on that list, so it's down there around number 40, is <laughs> a donate link. Click on that, and that takes you directly to our account with PayPal, and that's the Rainbow Roundtable account, and you can make make that donation with your bank card in any amount. Thank you for your generosity. If you want to access the Friends option, which will eliminate the commercial charges, you can do that by putting in the the gifting to the, directly to the email address there, and that email address is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And that just eliminates the commercial charges. Either way is perfect. We're so grateful for your contributions and for your participation and all the ways you show up in your life. So 
as we're making this contribution, let Rama know that what you sent and when you sent it, and that email from Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999 at Comcast.net. So it's Koran39Comcast.net is the address. So there you go. Uh, let them know what you sent, when you sent it, and then as you need it, there's a mailing address, and it is as follows. Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280, and that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip code there. So there you have it. Excuse me. And so I'll say it again. Post Office Box 280. Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So that's all the information. And we are so grateful for your generosity. We're so grateful for new people coming in and making contributions, assisting us as we get caught up with our uh, radio bills that are, are showing up. And we're grateful for the patience of all the people at BBS Radio, Don and Doug and TJ, for their patience with us as we as we do it. But we're one of their best customers, and they're the best radio in the land, so it all works out good, and you are the ones that support it. So you are so important to us <laughs> in, in every way you can think of. So, again, 13 thank yous. Honey in the heart, long life, no evil. I'm passing this talking stick. <clears throat> and, of course, on this serpent day, we've got the the uh, rainbow-feathered serpent on this talking stick, and we've got Quetzalcoatl there. We have Excalibur. We have um, lots of dragon energy and lots of fiery dragon energy. So, here it comes with fairies and feathers and all the little people. Greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. Greetings. Greetings. All you commanders, eagles, angels, and any other form that you might be in, beings of light. <laughs> uh, every kind of thing is going on. Uh, known and unknown manifestation time. We are in the changing of the ages like no other change of the ages before. And and then, as Rama's Faction Three White Knights say, we're always also in the most dangerous time, actually. Uh, we're within another uh, extinction-level event on the planet. It's already in progress. Uh, And at a certain point, um, the galactics are required to intervene. And that's what they... They have been doing stuff and they're accelerating it more and more. Like Rama's been saying that many, many more people are getting to see the starships. And they're also... The starships are landing and the beings are deboarding and inviting others to come in on tour on the, and have a look inside the ship, too. Yes. 
You want to say more? You've got another story today, too, too, Rowan. I didn't really talk to anyone today, but I sat with uh, six deer, three crows, and the caretaker. (laughs) Uh, uh, The the man who takes care of the gardening around the I Am Sanctuary and he's quite a character. He's 82, and he can run circles around me. And this guy used to um, do the decrees with um, Mommy and Daddy Ballard back in the day when they would play the harps and call in the angels and the masters and the forces of light. And right now, what this guy, the caretaker, is saying is, this is the time when all these stories about Quetzalcoatl and all the other legendary characters are supposed to show up, and they are showing up, and... I'd say we're rising to the occasion as we work with the ascension frequencies. And it's a challenge every day to stay in that balance point. Um, The solar flares continue. And uh, I went through a rainstorm today where I was just seeing sheets of rain and hailstones about the size of my fingernail on my big thumb. And that's pretty big. I mean, as they get... Let me see that. Yeah, that's like a bigger than a nickel. Yeah, and I mean, as that hits your windshield, things can happen like cracks. (laughs) And uh, it's a trip. Just watching the transformation of the planet, all the elements are saying, work with us and help us calm each other down by working with the Blu-ray, the violet ray, the emerald green ray, all these different rays of light that the I am folks talk about in the radiant rose, they do real, um, let's say, as you bring in those rays of energy and visualize it, it becomes real and things are made manifest in this realm. <laughs> and they move space-time energy, and it's a big deal because that's what we're all being asked to do, stay in that awareness of using the force. I was going to say, you know, there's uh, an, an audience from Faction 1 here. Um, greetings, everyone. Um, you've been hearing us for some months now, yet... We've been with BBS Radio for 15 years, <laughs> just on Station 2. And on Saturdays, as Rainbird was saying, uh, we're on for 10 hours. And the subject is Nasara Law. And our website is Rainbow Roundtable 
net. Yes. And then on the home page, the, uh, there's headings on there. Different tabs. Different tabs, and the one you want to click on is just called Nasara. Yes. And that's spelled N-E-S-A-R-A. It is not G-Sara, it is Nasara. Yeah, G-Sara has nothing to do with the Nasara a lot at all. Yeah. Contrary to... There are so many stories that I don't even want to go into, but it is a drama that is being played out on a larger scale and uh, to get everybody confused and not to get people to know what the true law is that's already been signed in law by Bill Clinton on October 10th of the year 2000 before he left office yes and uh, he didn't want to do it either no we had a few faction three we call them faction three white knights and they had their phasers, and they said, come with us. And he came with them, and he signed it. And that's for a purpose, because uh, as Elizabeth Warren has said in the past, and and she'll say it again, as asked now, the entire system uh, is completely corrupt thoroughly to its core and the system we're talking about is um, what do you want to call the system the United States of America but we don't have a country it's a corporation that is tied uh-huh. into the 13 families who answer to these so called fallen angels that the only place they actually talk about it is on ancient aliens and the internet and uh, Zachariah Sitchin. And this, it is a drama because it is interwoven with the so-called good book and the things that happened and, you know, names and places and events were twisted for the dark side. It's lasted this long and now it's totally being transformed (coughs) yes the dark side knows they've lost their their battle for control and power and (coughs) to continue the corruption yeah violence is not the answer that always that all yeah War is never the answer, and that's anything right. that's negative is never the answer. Love is the answer. Yes. Love, truth, peace, freedom, justice, and, and beauty for all that can be. So there's a 33-page document that describes in detail about the law, the Sara law. And it really started back in 1949 with note holders that have 42 zeros worth of a number or F in the front of it uh, in, in money that's to be redistributed around the world. And um, it's not about money, though. Mm-mm. Our sister Caroline described what Nasara is. It's a, a real chance for those 
six things in that order. Love, truth, peace, freedom, justice, and beauty. In that order has to start out with love. So we're going to play a little clip from Bernie Sanders from last night on uh, on um, Chris Hayes before mm-hmm. we get this one going. Here we go. What, Rum? Okay. You got the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild both still on strike. The Teamsters Union came within days of a nationwide strike against UPS and then struck a contract. Today, probably the most legendary store union in this nation, the United Auto Workers, faces a deadline for reaching an agreement with the big three automakers. In just a few minutes, at 10 p.m. Eastern, the union president is scheduled to tell his members which plants they will start striking if no agreement is reached by midnight. He sounds pretty determined in his speech to members yesterday. They could double our wages and not raise car prices and still make billions of dollars in profit. They want to scare the American people into thinking the auto workers are the problem. We're not the problem. That chart is the problem. Corporate greed is the problem. And come tomorrow night, if they force us, we're about to make it to Big Three's problem. Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, chairs the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. He's scheduled to join the man you saw there, Sean Fain, UAW president, for a rally in Detroit tomorrow, and he joins me now. Um, Senator, do you have a – obviously, I know you support the union. You'll be there with the union tomorrow. Do you have a kind of rooting interest here of the outcome you want to see? Yeah. The outcome I want to see is that the – UAW workers get the kind of contract they deserve. You know, the corporate media hasn't covered this very well, but the reality is over the last 20 years, real wages for automobile workers has gone down by 30% when you account for inflation. So what the workers are saying is at a time when the CEOs of Ford, he makes 21 million. The guy who's head of Stellantis, he makes 25 million a year. The woman who's head of General Motors, 29 million. Their salaries have gone up by 40% over the last four years. They have billions of dollars for dividends and stock buybacks. And what the workers are saying is, hey, we made you those profits. We gave you those salaries. Pay attention to our needs. We don't want to see a situation where workers at the low end make it all of 17 bucks an hour. And I'll tell you something, Chris. You mentioned that all over this country we're seeing strikes, and you're right. And I think what's happening is working people all across this country are sick and tired of the corporate greed they are seeing every day. They see it when they go to the grocery store. Food prices, incredibly high. Gas prices, incredibly high. Companies make it money hands over fists. And I really applaud the courage of Sean Fain and the workers at the UAW for standing up and saying, you know what, enough is enough. We need an economy that works for everybody, not just the people on top. I want to just show some of the, 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 the demands of the UAW, a 36% wage increase over four years. Um, one of the things I want to do, this is actually a key one, and this is a little in the weeds, but it's important for people to recognize. There, there are sort of these tiers that have emerged in, in successive rounds of organizing where newer workers aren't working at the same tier as others. It's a way of kind of breaking up the solidarity of the union. It, it's something that Sean Fain has been uh, opposed to, and, and, and the folks have elected him, so we'll see how that goes. I want to ask you this question on that context. 
We have seen all of this union activity at Starbucks and Amazon, uh, it, it, the, the Teamsters, you know, and, and, and UPS, this, this. What, you said workers are waking up, but it, it strikes me that part of the issue here is you've got tight labor markets. And employees have more choice now than they did during that long period after Great Recession where you had a lot of slack in the labor market. Six, seven, eight percent unemployment, people were worried they were replaceable. This, it seems to me this environment has given workers more say and more power in their negotiations with ownership. I think there is truth to that, Chris, but I think it really goes deeper. I think COVID, the pandemic, was a real emotional wake-up yeah. for the American people. You know, the rich people, the CEOs, could stay at home and work in their fancy offices or in their homes behind their computers Working people, people at the UAW, bus drivers, uh, people working in warehouses, nurses, doctors, they had to go out to work. And tens and tens of thousands of them died. And meanwhile, during that whole pandemic, we saw an explosion of wealth increases for the people on top. So, yeah, the tight labor market is a factor, Chris. But I really think that people are becoming sick and tired of the massive levels of income and wealth inequality that they're sitting today. No one thinks that three people on top should own more wealth than the bottom half of American society, that CEOs are making 400 times more than their workers. That's not what this country is supposed to be about. That's what the UAW is telling the American people, and I think there's massive support for what they're trying to do. I want to play this clip that got a lot of play. It sort of went viral. It's, it's a sort of random clip because it's just an uh, Australian property developer. But what he's articulating at this conference with other property developers is a view that I think some, a lot of people in management or ownership at least have about exactly this awakening that's happened post-COVID, right? That people have this sort of idea that like they want to be treated with dignity. They want right. fairness. This is him saying we need unemployment to rise to knock the arrogance out of these workers. Take a listen. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40, 50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. We need to remind people they work for the employer, not the other way around. What do you think of that? I think it's disgusting. And it's you know, hard to believe that you have that kind of mentality among the ruling class in the year 2023. You know, this is the richest country in the history of the world, and yet we still have 60%. 60% of our people living paycheck to paycheck. People can't afford housing. People can't afford health care. They can't afford childcare. They can't afford to send their kids to college. And when these guys are saying, hey, this is all great. Working classes in disarray. Let's have more unemployment. We can get richer and richer. Make them more and more desperate. That is the kind of greed and arrogance that the UAW and unions all over this country are standing up to. I applaud them and I would hope that all of us as Americans stand with the UAW in their struggle. All right. We will be monitoring that announcement tonight and uh, see what happens tomorrow when you will be joining Sean Fain there in Detroit Center. Bernie Sanders, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. I also all right. And now we'll go to our sister Aurora Ray. Thank you, Bernie. Conquer the cosmos. Imagine a future where humans venture beyond the confines of Earth, embarking on a thrilling journey to inhabit other planets within the vast expanse of the Galactic Federation. 
Let us delve into the awe-inspiring benefits of such a paradigm-shifting move, transcending the boundaries of our home planet and unlocking new frontiers of human exploration and discovery, bursting with planetary diversity. Beyond the blue marble that is Earth lies a tapestry of planets with unique biomes, ecosystems, and life forms waiting to be unraveled. The sheer number of extraterrestrial worlds in our galaxy is a treasure trove for scientists and explorers alike, providing unparalleled opportunities to study the origins of life, witness evolutionary marvels, and broaden our understanding of the cosmos. From lush green forests to arid deserts, from frozen tundras to molten lava rivers, the unexplored planets beckon untold wonders, igniting our curiosity and fueling our thirst for knowledge, unleashing technological marvels. The pursuit of interplanetary colonization requires breakthroughs in cutting-edge technology and infrastructure that push the boundaries of human innovation. From advanced propulsion systems for interstellar travel to sustainable resource management techniques, from self-sustaining habitats to terraforming technologies, the challenges of living on other planets demand unprecedented technological advancements. The pursuit of such feats of engineering and science could spur a revolution in fields such as renewable energy, artificial intelligence, and material sciences, transforming the way we live not just in space, but also on Earth and elevating humanity to new heights of technological prowess. Resilience in the face of the unknown. Earth, our home planet, is vulnerable to natural disasters and global threats. Moving beyond Earth to other planets within the Galactic Federation could provide a safeguard against such risks. As humanity reaches for the stars, envision a future where our species has not only conquered the challenges of interplanetary travel, but has also established thriving colonies on multiple planets beyond our homeworld. This daring endeavor could not only ensure our survival in the face of the unknown, but also unleash a cascade of profound changes that transcend the boundaries of imagination. The resilience gained from inhabiting multiple planets would be nothing short of extraordinary. It would arm us with the adaptability and fortitude needed to navigate uncharted territories and overcome unforeseen obstacles. From the harsh conditions of distant planets to the unexplored mysteries of the cosmos, our resilience would be put to the ultimate test forging in us an unwavering spirit that transcends planetary boundaries. Yet the impact of interplanetary colonization goes beyond mere survival. It would require a level of global cooperation and collaboration unprecedented in human history. By cooperating with the Galactic Federation across political, cultural, and national boundaries, it would necessitate collaborative efforts from nations, organizations, and diverse communities. This interplanetary cooperation would not only unite us in a shared purpose, but also foster mutual understanding, peaceful relations, and a global unity that transcends planetary boundaries. It would be a testament to our collective capacity to come together for a greater cause, setting the stage for a new era of interplanetary diplomacy and cooperation among civilizations. But interplanetary colonization is not just a physical feat, it is a voyage of the human consciousness. It would challenge our very notions of self, society, and the universe.
living on other planets would open up new philosophical, spiritual, and cultural perspectives, stretching the boundaries of our perception and understanding. It would ignite our sense of wonder, fuel our creativity, and inspire transformative shifts in our collective worldview. It would be a profound journey of self-discovery, pushing the boundaries of human consciousness to new frontiers and ushering in a new epoch of human evolution. In conclusion, the idea of humans colonizing other planets is a breathtaking frontier that holds limitless possibilities for humanity. From the marvels of planetary diversity and technological advancements, to resilience in the face of the unknown and fostering interplanetary cooperation, the potential of this paradigm-shifting move is awe-inspiring. It is a journey that would redefine our place in the cosmos, elevate our consciousness, and bring about profound changes that transcend planetary boundaries. It is a testament to the boundless curiosity, resilience, and fortitude of the human spirit as we strive to unlock the mysteries of the universe and shape our destiny among the stars. The future is coming. Let's make it a good one. Join me in our quest to expand humanity's horizons, break through the boundaries of planet Earth, and explore new worlds. The universe is vast, and so are the potentials of humankind. We're not alone. The possibilities are endless. Let's explore the universe together. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. Thank you so much for playing that, Ralph. Yeah, I would also say colonization is sort of a trigger word in this realm. <laughs> and it's got to change. Well, yeah. Colonization is not the problem. It's the it's the ugly truth about those who are doing that thing at the moment. Yes. For control, power and more money. Greed. Greed is not a family value. Mm, no. So, Rama, let's have the uh, uh, the conference number. Uh, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. One more time. 720-716-7301. <laughs> And the pin code is 353863-POUND. Okay, we'll see you there, everybody. And uh, join us if you haven't before. We'll have a wonderful conversation there. And we'll be right back here at BBS Radio, best radio in, in the neighborhood, <laughs> at the top of this next hour. Namaste. See you on the conference.
Precious Heart, thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. The emerald green and violet flame of healing through the power of infinite transmutation has been building in momentum since it was anchored within the heart of Mother Earth through the portal in Tucson, Arizona in 1983. At that time, our Father Mother God said this sacred fire is a fifth dimensional frequency of healing. And it is the most powerful frequency of healing that humanity is capable of withstanding in our physical, etheric, mental, and emotional carbon-based bodies. For four decades, this healing flame has been greatly assisting the I am presence of every person with the divine alchemy that is gradually transfiguring our carbon-based earthly bodies into fifth-dimensional crystalline-based light bodies. Now that Mother Earth has ascended into the initial frequencies of her new solar reality, this sacred emerald green and violet flame has also ascended into a brand new solar frequency of healing through the power of infinite transmutation. 
Today, the legions of healing throughout infinity will join with us in an activity of light that will allow our I am presence to utilize this sacred fire for our individual and collective healing. This will be accomplished the maximum that cosmic law will allow in alignment with our divine plans and God's divine will. If you have the heart call to participate, please join us now. And we begin. His healing activity is stated in the first person so that every person's I am presence will deliberately participate on a conscious level. I am sitting comfortably in my chair with my spine as straight as possible and my arms and legs uncrossed, making me an open conduit for this activity of healing light. My I am presence, my silent watcher, and my fifth dimensional body elemental now take command of my earthly bodies and this powerful healing process. I am my I am presence, and I am one with my Father, Mother, God. I am also one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child on earth. The healing I am invoking for myself this day, I am also invoking on behalf of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth. This activity of healing is being God victoriously accomplished through each person's I am presence in perfect alignment with each one's divine plan and the highest good for all concerned. With every in-breath I take, my Father, Mother, God, now breathe into my breath from the very core of creation, brand new solar frequencies of the fifth dimensional emerald green and violet flame of healing through the power of infinite transmutation. With my every outbreath, this sacred emerald green and violet flame flows through the mighty transformer formed by the unified heart flames of the light workers gathered here into the center of the earth where it is secured in the newly ascended solar heart flame of Mother Earth. Once Mother Earth assimilates this sacred fire of solar healing, she joyously breathes it out through her fifth dimensional crystalline grid system of comprehensive divine love. This exquisite healing light blesses all life evolving on this sweet earth. In deep gratitude, 
every particle and wave of life on this planet begins to experience with wonder and awe this brand new solar frequency of healing. I continue focusing on my holy breath and I clearly see that with every breath I am magnetizing into my heart flame and projecting into the heart flame of Mother Earth higher and higher solar frequencies of the emerald green and violet flame of healing through the power of infinite transmutation. Every person's I am presence is now standing in readiness to participate in the maximum healing that cosmic law will allow within our earthly bodies. Under the guidance of my I am presence, my silent watcher and my fifth dimensional body elemental, the emerald green and violet flame of healing begins to permeate every facet of my earthly bodies. This sacred fire penetrates into the core of purity in every electron of my physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies in preparation for this life-transforming divine healing that will now take place in these vehicles. With deep concentration, I visualize the emerald green and violet flame of solar healing as my I am presence, my silent watcher, and my fifth dimensional body elemental now command this sacred fire to heal, cleanse, rejuvenate, restore, renew, resurrect, and transfigure the various systems in my body temple. My healing process begins as the emerald green and violet flame expands through my physical brain structure. My spinal cord, my nervous system, my chakra system, and my corresponding meridians and acupuncture points. This healing flame instantaneously removes every trace of disease or imbalance of any kind in these systems. As this occurs, my conscious awareness is rising to a higher level. This is increasing my ability to think, to comprehend, and to use my creative faculties of thought to co-create the infinite perfection of the 
dimensional crystalline solar new earth. Next, the healing flame flows into my eyes, instantaneously removing every trace of disease or imbalance of any kind. This healing flame is restoring my eyes to perfect sight, allowing me to see with new eyes and to recognize truth and perfection in all life. The emerald green and violet flame now flows into my ears instantaneously removing every trace of disease or imbalance of any kind. My ears are restored to perfect hearing, allowing me to hear with new ears the intuitive inner voice of my I am presence and the music of the spheres. flame now flows into my nostrils, sinuses, respiratory system, lungs, larynx, vocal cords, trachea, bronchial tubes, and every function of my voice and breathing apparatus. Instantaneously, every trace of disease or imbalance of any kind is removed. My breathing is enhanced and I am able to breathe the maximum frequency of God's prana and life force with every single newly balanced and elevated holy breath I take. I am now blessed with the breath of the Holy Spirit and I am empowered to speak with the tongues of angels. Next, the emerald green and violet flame flows into my mouth, teeth, gums, tongue, esophagus, stomach, liver, gallbladder, small intestines, ileocecal valve, large intestines, appendix, colon, kidneys, bladder, and every aspect of my digestive and elimination systems. Instantaneously, every trace of disease or imbalance of any kind is removed. The healing flame is restoring all of these aspects 
of my digestive and elimination systems to vibrant health, thus allowing me to purify my body and to assimilate my food and beverages perfectly. Now, the healing flame flows into my spiritual brain centers, my pineal, pituitary, and hypothalamus glands, and the ganglionic centers at the base of my brain. The emerald green and violet flame now flows into the remainder of my endocrine system, my thyroid, thymus, pancreas, spleen, adrenal glands, gonads, and all of the other glands associated with this ductless system. Instantaneously, every trace of disease or imbalance of any kind is removed. And all of these aspects of my endocrine system are restored to perfect balance and function. The healing flame now flows through the various facets of my circulatory system. First, it flows through my lymph nodes and lymphatic fluid. Then, into the muscle of my heart. And through the chambers, valves, veins, arteries, and capillaries. The emerald green and violet flame now flows through my red and white blood cells and my bone marrow. Instantaneously, every trace of disease or imbalance of any kind is removed from my circulatory system. This is increasing my ability to feel and to use my creative faculties of feeling in heart-based ways that express divine love, oneness, and reverence for all life. Now, the emerald green and violet flame of healing flows into my reproductive system my female or male organs. Instantaneously, every trace of disease or imbalance of any kind is removed. The healing flame restores every aspect of my reproductive system to its perfect function for this stage in my life. This allows me to hold the sacred space, either for myself or for anyone else who is destined to bring in the children of the new earth. This healing flame 
is creating a chalice of light in every mother and father. A holy grail through which these precious children will be born. The transfigured reproductive systems in every parent will enable the I am presence of the incoming children to create perfect vehicles through which they will assist in co-creating the solar new earth. Next, the healing flame flows into my skeletal and muscular systems. My bones, muscles, joints, tendons, ligaments, cartilage, fat cells, and connective tissue. Instantaneously, every trace of disease or imbalance of any kind is removed. The emerald green and violet flame of healing restores every aspect of these systems, empowering me with strength, vitality, and eternal youth. Now, this healing flame flows through my skin, hair, nails, and every remaining facet of my physical body. Instantaneously, every trace of disease or imbalance of any kind is removed. As this healing flame purges every remaining trace of contamination or disease in my earthly bodies, my I am presence is able to greatly accelerate my transfiguration into the immaculate concept of my fifth dimensional crystalline solar light bodies of vibrant health, eternal youth, radiant beauty, and infinite perfection. Now, with the new solar emerald green and violet flame of healing, through the power of infinite transmutation, pulsating in every electron of my earthly bodies and the earthly bodies of all humanity. I ask my Father, Mother, God, and the legions of light associated with this sacred fire to blaze it through the entire elemental kingdom and the physical, etheric, mental and emotional strata of Mother Earth. I know and accept that this healing activity of the emerald green and violet flame is being God victoriously accomplished with every breath I take. The divine solar templates for the fifth dimensional crystalline solar light bodies 
of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth have now been formed and will be amplified every single day with every breath I take by my Father Mother God through Mother Earth's fifth-dimensional crystalline solar grid of comprehensive divine love. For this, I am eternally grateful. And so it is, beloved, I am that I am. to bring you a message that is similar but different from others that I've given before about some basic truths and perhaps even some deceptions of the old energy. All of you come from this planet, from the civilization of the time. experienced what your parents have told you, what others have told you, and you've received instructions. But more than that, you've received concepts and sometimes habits. I want to tell you again, everything I speak of now is moving from the darkness to the light resetting and reframing that which is you. Some of the things that I talk about are knee-jerk reactions that are intuitive to what you do because you've always done it. And I'm going to tell you, perhaps, it's a pitfall. And the solution to getting around it your thought and your teaching on things which would seem to be competitive. Part of what you 
you think is competitive, you call life. The right job, the right place, how you're seen, what happens if you don't do the right thing. This comes from the energy of teaching right from those you love. And now I'm going to give you a postulate, dear ones, whereas you might have seen a system of winning and losing. The new paradigm for your life is not that at all. Perhaps you've taught that for every winner there has to be a loser, and that would then emulate the systems of your politics. Winner takes all, every time. And you filter it down to your life and it would seem the same. Winner takes all. You either win it or you lose it. Now I want you to start reframing that, dear ones. And I want you to say this, and I want you to mean this. When you're in trouble, perhaps, and you think in these terms, I'll tell you something that no one ever said to you. There is enough for everyone. There is enough for everyone. There is enough love. Have some olive oil before your bed, and your sleeping partner will love you for it. There's just one problem there's a good chance you've never actually consumed fresh olive oil. There is enough abundance, there is enough food. Manifest for the wisdom that you have as an old soul, for what you've gone through. I speak to old souls now, there is enough for everyone. There is an old adage that says if one accelerates, the other one won't. Something about the fact that there's somehow limited abundance or limited success or limited money. That is an old paradigm. It is a deception of an old energy. For you and your lives, it's not win and lose, it's win and win. This may be difficult, maybe difficult for you to understand. I'm asking you to change the paradigm of your thought. In everyday life, when you see things, there's no winner and loser. There's enough for everyone. Sometimes there would be those who would tell you there's not enough for everyone. That there would have to be some who would suffer if others had what they needed. This is an old paradigm. It has to do with linear things. It is not esoteric. It has nothing to do with the love of God, your experience. It has nothing to do with that which you are trying to do, which is accelerate into higher consciousness. All of you have that ability. There'll be no losers in this. There won't be some who accelerate and then rob energy so others can't. This is an old paradigm. started to channel with him one of the things he said over and over 
is that there's already channeling. He says, there's no room for another book on your shelves. I've been there. Why should I then contribute to something that already is there, already exists? Why me? They have enough. Then he said the magic words that plague him to this day. He says, they're better than I am. Dear ones, this had to be reframed in his life. That there's enough for everyone. There's enough high consciousness. There's enough enlightenment. All of these things. You limit yourselves because you look around and you say, there isn't this, there isn't that. Or therefore, all the things that are linear, all the things that you can talk, including, I'm too old. This will never happen for me. <laughs> Someone had to hear that. That's old thinking. If you start to reframe this and know that there's enough for everyone, your body starts to understand it, cognize it, your consciousness will broadcast it, and your life starts to change. Let me give you the premise of Cryon, which is number two. You're never alone. When my partner sat in the chair for the first time, it was frightening to him. Because what he felt was not anything that had words connected to it. He didn't, he didn't hear anything. It was, it was concepts that he felt immediately sitting in the chair after he had asked Spirit, if you're there, show me. Oh, that was so dangerous. It was dangerous because we showed him and his life changed. It was dangerous because he wasn't ready for the paradigm shift that took place. But what he felt made him weep. He realized that when he sat in the chair without saying anything, without realizing anything, he felt dozens around him who loved him holding his hands. He could feel the light that was there. He didn't know what to do with it. And so he cried. It was overwhelming. It wasn't supposed to be there. For the first time, he realized that he was never alone. had never been alone in his life. And now he walks the planet knowing this, counts on it. Let's give it a peace. And so I say, what about you? What have you been told is there outside of you? I want you to drop all of that just for a moment and think again of what is there. The complexities of a multidimensional experience are exhaustive. multidimensional, you are not 
It's many hues, if that helps. In many dimensions, if that helps. The group may be you with you, but it's a group. Somehow it's together as one, and in many ways it is a part as helpers. What if I told you that your guides were you? Would that diminish them to you? Well, yeah, but I think this is getting better. 
friends will look at you and say, you're wrong. What's wrong with you? You may even create a distance between you and your friends because things are not always getting worse for you. And that is the point. The old energy and the new energy, sometimes they clash. They don't come together. Sometimes it will take this those to leave the conversation or wish you weren't there because you're not striking the doom that they want. Don't you know better? After all, the world's always getting worse. It isn't, dear ones. In fact, what is going on on this planet right now is a readjustment of light and dark, a reevaluation, a reframing of human consciousness that will take some time. In the process, we've discussed what the planet is going through, what the weather is going through, the preparation for a new consciousness, what it's going through. We've talked about the wild cards that have come in to stir things up for you. We've talked about many kinds of shocks to some who will say, see, it's worse and worse. And at the same time, you realize that these things, what they think are worse is simply because they're changed. Change from what they had. Sometimes change itself means that things are getting worse. What do you do? What can you do? Dear ones, all you can do is to drop the box that you were taught in, to understand and cognize the shift that is going on that was prophesied by the ancients is the most positive thing that has ever happened to humanity. You're part of it. You sit in it. You're the old soul who's going to experience it. So start to give it lip service. And if not to those friends who want to say it's getting worse, perhaps to your children, perhaps to others who will listen. If not, perhaps to a tree. <laughs> Celebrating the fact that this planet is going through readjustment that may be difficult or seem like it's getting worse when it is not. Celebrating light that hasn't happened here before. When light occurs and it hasn't happened, people are afraid. Because it's different, because it has energy. Because it makes things look different and that creates fear. It's easy to say things are getting worse. They're not. Not anymore. In the old paradigm, maybe so, but not now. In fact, the turnaround is just beginning. That's the solution. But I still ask you, watch for the habit. And if you friends you love and they have the habit just don't chime in you can say to yourself every time they say it's getting worse you can say that's just what you think and you're lying of course <laughs> when they start talking about the itemization of what makes it worse you can say well that's just what you think and you're lying of course and in that way you sit there and you don't participate with them
other human beings define you and control your life every day. Every day. Not understanding that you have completely total free will, not to buy into what they say or fear the ramifications of what they say. They may do. It happens at home, it happens at work. It's society-wide. It has to do with not only the infrastructure, but who's in charge and who is not, whether it's at home or at work. And what someone says that affects you. Dear old soul, it's time to drop this completely and understand that no human being, no matter what they say, as they look in your eyes, can affect you. In the past, how many of you do you think got disease because of what others told you or what they put you through on a regular basis? And you died young and didn't have to because you bought into it. This is one of the greatest deceptions of an old energy, that other human beings can define you and affect you. If you let them, they will. Dear ones, if somebody starts to tell you things you don't want to hear or demeans you, and if it's an inappropriate situation and you can't leave, you do not have to respond. You can tune them out. You can shine your life. I am magnificent. This is not me. What they're saying is their issue coming right out of their mouth. Did you ever think of that? Everything they say to you is their issue targeted at you. It's nothing to do with you. Can you disengage to the point where somebody can yell names at you and you are not feeling a thing? And if you can, congratulations. That's free choice. By the way, you live longer. Humans can cause other humans to die sooner and have disease. That's just the way of it. Because in an old energy, you buy into it, you fret about it, you fear, you worry. The pride you don't understand, this is my boss. <laughs> then get another boss. That is what we're telling you. If it's happening at home, you're going to have to reframe your own resistance to changing it. Perhaps it's a habit that you can't break. Let me tell you something, that doesn't exist. In this new energy with the light, that doesn't exist. You can break any habit at this point in time. You have more power for this than any time. There's more light. There's more help. The wind is at your back. You can stand in front of a constant abusive person and not feel anything except being sorry they're having a bad day. Whatever they say, they're echoing who they are to you. Don't have to buy into it. Many needed to hear this because that is where the crux, perhaps, of your discomfort right now is. They will tell you you're nothing or demean you, and for some unbelievable reason in your magnificence, you believe that you can change.
is free choice. That's power, real power. The last one, number five, is similar. Did you realize that when you center around groups of people and you start talking about other people or situations and you start complaining, it's a habit. Dear ones, I want you to reframe your conversation. If you cannot say something positive, don't say it. I want you to watch what happens. Number one, your friends may stop being your friends. That's not an all bad thing. Find other friends who will speak more positive. But I want to tell you something that everything you say Every situation you set up with your complaints is heard by your cellular destruction, your cellular structure. And in that, it's destructive. This is an energy, dear ones, that you are telling your body and the field and everything around you, almost like you're, you're ordering an energy that's going to come and be delivered to you. We've said that before, but complaining perhaps is one of the chief issues that will come back on you over and over. It's a negative attitude that will sow seeds of negativity that will be in you. Did you know that? Complaining is a habit. You say, my whole society complains. Is that the reason why you should complain? It is not. It truly is not. It does not make you a better person to join in that which is complaining. I told you these truths would be personal and today they are. It is not up to you to rewrite anyone else's program, but yours. I want you to think about that the next time you have an opportunity to complain about something that perhaps is complainable about. What can you do? You can think positive about yourself, about the situation, about that which others would complain about, and look at the other humans involved. You may very well not know the habit that they are in as well. Can you see God in everything? Can you see God in other human beings? If you complain about situations, could you understand why situations might be there where there's no control? Could you see the upside or the light in any of these? This is not a silver lining on a cloud, dear ones. This is a paradigm shift of thinking and speaking and consciousness. That's what it is. So what we're telling you is it's a habit to create conversations that literally make you have a shorter life. It's a habit. If your cellular structure is at peace with itself and your consciousness is at peace with itself, this is the secret to you think. It truly is. My partner says, 
Many times he continues to wake up at three in the morning. He used to do that. And there was a laundry list of things to worry about. And now he wakes up because it's a habit. And the first thing he thinks about is, what are we going to worry about? And then he realizes, nothing. And he's asleep in 10 minutes. It's a habit, dear ones, that many of you have to this day. So if you wake up at 3 in the morning and you start your laundry list of worries, I want you to stand up. If you have to get out of bed and you say to anyone who will listen to you or not listen to you, not this time. Say it out loud, not anymore. Because I have peace in my life over even the things that seem to be worry-filled subjects. I have peace over all of them. Is this doable? Oh, yes. The more you do this, the easier it gets. Until there's a time when you will wake up at three in the morning and realize there is nothing there that is too big for the love of God or the synchronicity in your life or for the old soul and you'll be asleep again immediately. But that's the secret. That's the solution. Understand your magnificence and your mastery, the can-do of what is in your body, the control you have of you in any situation, you in any situation and knowing you are totally and completely loved worthy and you belong here that's the message for tonight there is some rewriting to do isn't there there are some things that have to be shifted and changed has talked to you
heard the music at that time. <laughs> that was very loud. But the music is what it is. The sound of one hand clamping is also what it is. Greetings, Mother. In the light of the most radiant one in the office of the Christ. Only in the office of the Christ. We invoke the loving energy of Saint Germain and divine flame. We ask at this time for greater insight for everything under the sun to know that love is always the answer, that our thoughts manifest in our presence, how we perceive those thoughts, how we transmute those thoughts, that's the question. Greetings, Mother. Greetings. Greetings. Children of Ra. How we transmute the thoughts. That's the key. What Patty was talking about. The emerald green ray. The violet ray. This is what's being called for at this time. It is... Raising it up in spite of our wayward children having the last word. Like the man just said. This is the greatest time to be here. To change the thoughts. This new you, me, Pinky Lee. Every 
everything that's unfolding at this time is about this great shift of the ages. And we can say it's about us taking our power back with love. Lots of stuff going on. It's all about what's happening inside here. It's a reflection out here. The chaos that's going on is about ending this final story of this idea of limitation, limitless is what we are, luminous beings. The light that is pouring in from Creator Source, 10 trillion suns, and then some. Each day is a gift that's unfolding with the light pouring in. We suggest you embrace it. We all embrace it. As we use the violet ray, the emerald green ray, it solves many problems within our lives. As we work with these rays, see them as living energies that you can taste, touch, feel. It is as real as your head. And the light pouring out of your chakras in your hands, you can see the violet light, emerald green light. Quite amazing to behold. We all have this power. say with great certainty
this timeline is complete. Yeah, a long time ago, right, Mother? Yes. It's just that uh, the ones don't want to give up the ghosts. The ghost of ancient past, isn't that a saying in some movie? Oh. <laughs> yes. Coming back to haunt. It is about sending more love to the ones who don't want to give up the ghost. It's difficult once you put on the dark cloak to take it off. So they think Yeah, it is easy as changing your point of view. It is difficult to stay in a negative place Mm -hmm. with the light that's pouring in right now. It is a glorious time to be alive. At the same moment, we have been called to active duty by our own selves. The energies of the force in of itself to be ready for what's unfolding. It is about embracing this new light coming in. And hmm, we would say don't get attached to the thoughts, let them go. Just like the water, let it flow. As you merge with the energies of this flow of light, love, peace, joy, radiance, that is pouring in at this time. It's we fail to have the words mm. just love is the answer. Let it all go. Yeah, we're talking about ending the separation between hearts and souls, minds and beingness. We were just talking about this earlier about 
the one beingness of all it is. You know, we're all here. Yes. And we're connected to all my relations. We're all related. In my guest to all my relations. Yes, that's right. That's a Native American's uh, origin, too, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Oh, me talk, we asked To all my relations. Mm-hmm. We have the ability, like the Hopi prophecy says, all the elders... There's another saying, Mother. It's um, gate, gate, which means beyond, beyond. Parasangate, beyond the beyond. There I am. Yes. That I am. (laughs) I am that I am. Yeah. It is a very challenging time to be here. And we commend you for being here. Mm. It's not foolhardiness. It's a conscious choice. We made the choice to show up. And it is a Huge deal. This time around, this what's happening? All the familiar folks are returning. All the ancient masters, teachers are here. As we ask, they show up. Just gotta trust your intuition. Listen. And you will hear it. It is ourselves calling to us to stay in the oneness. It's a very big deal when we are caught up in the matrix, the Maya. That's why before and after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Mm-hmm. Be here now. Be loved now. What we have created for ourselves is this magnificent amusement park, if you will, with that thought. And we can end it now. And we highly suggest we use the emerald green ray 
the violet ray. Miracles can happen in an instant. Gotta just trust the force. Listen to your heart and the intuition. Your gut. That's where the second brain is. Mm-hmm. Oh, hmm. Lots of wisdom there. We keep saying, as you take a magnificent journey into this temple, thousands of miles of adventures within the capillaries, arteries, veins of this temple. And there are all kinds of messages. These magnificent organs speak to us. Like Greg Braden talks about the heart can create miracles, dissolve tumors in a matter of minutes. She gone. Ask. Use the ways of the force. It better be on our way. That's another answer to what Padme was asking on the conference call about um Getting the jab pretty much wipes out the immune system. Yes. What did you just say that could do that? Could bring it back. Emerald green ray, (laughs) violet ray. Color, sound, and vibration, yeah. It, it, It does require that you attune to the awareness of it. Yes. Yeah. Gotta be diligent. Do it every single day without fail. Yeah. And it changes space time. This is what is being said each moment. All the animals, the elementals, these basic five elements, earth, air, wind, water, goes into these five animals. Forms in Kung Fu many connections through the Tai Chi, the Qigong. It is this moment that is such a gift to be here 
And at the same time, what a wild ride. <laughs> we asked to get on the ride. We remember everyone asking to show up here to do this mission. Now, take the power, use it with love. Create in the light of the most radiant one. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Adonai, Sabayot. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Adonai, Sabayot. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Adonai, Sabayot. Ilyahu, Ilyahu, Ilyahu. Yod, hey. Bold, hey. Yava. Adonai, Vasu, Varagas. Namaste. to everyone. We're waiting for Robert to come back in the body there. As mother is on her way. That was fast. Hi, Rama. Where did you go? Mm. Mount Kailash. And? And one of the crystal palaces there. Um, I was being shown around by one of the llamas there and this crystal palace is somehow connected with Shambhala the greater and I'm not sure but there are passageways connections different portals you walk through I just um, remember walking through this grand gallery and the crystal sculptures are um, they're as magnificent as what you see in Egypt with the, the Great Pyramid and the other um, temples. And very soon, all of this will be shown to the world. It's just, it's time for all of this to come forth. I passed the talking stick. All right, we're ready to jump into the next... Next story, huh? Uh, oh, you got to do it on there. Uh, Let's do, uh, what do you want to do first? Thursday, you want to do Naomi first? 
Yeah, Amy and Naomi laid it out here. And I, I just, we haven't heard from Naomi Klein for a very long time, and she is an, a master uh, in terms of seeing between the lines and yeah. sussing out the truth. This is a big deal with what's going on. Is uh, the latest book she wrote is called Doppelganger, and it's about. Another person with her same first name, and her last name is not the same. And she tells a story about overhearing in the ladies' room uh, others talking about what they thought they were talking about her, and it was not. It was about this doppelganger, meaning this other Naomi person, Wolf. Naomi Wolf, and we used to play her, and she used to be very, very well-oriented and grounded in, uh, you might say, telling the right stuff, you know, and then she got together with Bannon. It's as if she it got, is, uh, you know, you uh, got hijacked by something else that wasn't the right thing to be hijacked by, that's for sure. The mind control of the dark side. Oh, my gosh. So, anyway, this is, this is a great piece. Are you ready, honey? Yeah. Here we go. by Foreigner, here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Today, we make a trip into the mirror world. The acclaimed writer Naomi Klein has a new book out this week that delves deeply into the culture of conspiracy theories and a growing alliance between the far right and people who once identified as progressive. The book comes as Robert F. Kennedy Jr. campaigns against Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination for president. Kennedy, who was once a prominent environmental lawyer, is now a leading figure in the anti-vaccine movement. In July, Kennedy made headlines after claiming, quote, COVID-19 is targeted to attack Caucasians and black people. He went on to say Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese are most immune to COVID. One notable defender of Kennedy's claims was the writer Naomi Wolf, who's best known for her 1991 book, The Beauty Myth. In a Substack post, Wolf defended Kennedy, writing, quote, RFK Jr. is cursed and blessed with a passion for actual truth, she wrote. Kennedy and Wolf have both been embraced by the far right. Republican mega donors are helping to bankroll Kennedy's long shot presidential campaign, while Wolf is now a regular guest on Steve Bannon's podcast, the war room, where she spreads conspiracy theories about COVID vaccines and other issues. Former Fox News host Tucker Carlson has also praised Naomi Wolf, saying she is, quote, 
one of the bravest, clearest thinking people I know. Well, Naomi Wolf plays a central role in Naomi Klein's new book titled Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. Klein examines how and why more and more people started confusing her with Wolf as Naomi Wolf fell deeper into what Naomi Klein called the mirror world where facts no longer matter. Naomi Klein writes in the book, quote, the trouble with the mirror world, there is always some truth mixed in with the lies, always some devastating collective failure it's identified and is opportunistically exploiting, unquote. In a moment, Naomi Klein will join us live. But first, we play a short video produced along with the book. Hi, I'm Naomi Klein. And as some of you know, I have a doppelganger, a person who does many extreme things that cause strangers to chastise me or thank me or express their pity for me. I used to be horrified by this, but then something happened that I didn't expect. I got interested, interested in what it means to have a doppelganger. So I decided to follow my doppelganger to a place I've come to think of as the mirror world. It's a strange mirror image of the world where I live. It's a place where many ideas that I care about are being twisted and warped into dangerous doppelganger versions of themselves. When I look at the mirror world, I don't see disagreements over a shared reality. I see disagreements about what is real and what is a simulation. And with AI generating more and more of what we see and hear, it's only getting harder to distinguish the authentic from the synthetic. After all, artificial intelligence is a mirroring and mimicry machine. We feed in the cumulative words, ideas, and images that our species has managed to create. And these programs mirror back to us something that feels uncannily lifelike. But it's not life. It's a forgery of life. I shadowed my double further into the mirror world, a place where soft-focused wellness influencers make common cause with fire-breathing far-right propagandists, all in the name of saving and protecting the children. Not everyone is dogged by their doppelganger, but our culture is crowded with all kinds of doubling. All of us who maintain a persona or avatar online are kind of creating our own doppelgangers, forging a separate public identity that is both us and not us, a doppelganger we perform for one another as the price of admission in a rapacious attention economy. And all the while, tech companies create digital profiles of us without our full knowledge, data doubles or golems that follow us everywhere we go online, carrying their own agenda, their own logics, and their own threats. What is all of this doubling and doppelganging doing to us? How is it steering what we pay attention to, and more critically, what we neglect and ignore? 
Doppelgangers are often understood as a warning or an omen, a message that something needs our attention. Reality is doubling, multiplying, glitching, telling us to pay attention. Because it's not just individuals who can flip into a sinister version of themselves, the Earth can transform into a menacing, uncanny twin of what we once knew. Whole societies can flip. That's the reason many doppelganger works of art are ultimately about the latent potential for fascism within our societies, even within ourselves. What I've learned by shadowing my double is that the forces that have destabilized my personal world are part of a much larger web of forces that are destabilizing our shared world. And understanding these forces may be our best hope of getting to firmer ground. That video featured Naomi Klein, author of the new book Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. Naomi Klein is an award-winning author and journalist. She's professor of climate justice at the University of British Columbia, founding co-director of the UBC Center for Climate Justice. Her previous books include On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. This changes everything, capitalism versus the climate. No logo, taking aim at the brand bullies. Naomi is also a columnist for The Guardian. She's joining us now from Washington, D.C., as she begins her book tour around the country. Naomi, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you Thank with you. us. And congratulations Thank you on, so the, much, Amy. on the publication of this book. I like what the great artist and uh, author Molly Crabapple said about your book, a dazzling hallucinatory tour de force that takes the reader through shadow selves and global fascism, leaving them gasping by the end. So, Naomi, if you can explain more this journey you took uh, through the pandemic, uh, into this mirror world, um, who your doppelganger is, and then go back to, to 2011 and that moment in the loo where you um, talk about uh, hearing women talk about you, or was it Naomi Wolf? Take it from there. All right. Well, first, first of all, Amy uh, and Armin, thank you so much for having me back on the show. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Uh, and thank you for, for airing that video. I just want to credit the director, Colby Richardson, who's an amazing video artist. So those of you who are listening just to the audio, I really encourage you to, to watch the, to watch the video version because it gets really trippy. Um, Amy, you listed some of my previous books in that in that uh, lovely introduction. Uh, my books, Back to No Logo, my first book, which I wrote on the cusp of the of the new millennium, almost a quarter of a century ago, um, have been attempts to map uh, our political moment. They've they've been attempts to to make sense of, of moments of big shifts uh, in our political world, our cultural world. Um, and, uh, and, and in the case of, of this changes everything, our, our physical world. Um, and I would say that Doppelganger is an attempt to make, attempt to make a, a usable map of, of our moment. The thing is, our moment is a lot weirder and wilder uh, than any I've ever lived through. 
there are all kinds of strange happenings at work, all kinds of uncanny events. So I thought in many ways that I needed to write in a different way, a way that sort of mirrored the wildness of now. Uh, and so, you know, I let myself have more fun with the writing. I, I, uh, I wanted to refine a voice that uh, that felt more like me, that felt more like the person who talks to their friends, that was more conversational. But also, Amy, you know, um, you know, this project began during the pandemic, and um, I've written about large-scale collective shocks. That's what the shock doctrine was about. But I realized that in the past, you know, if I was covering Hurricane Katrina or the U.S. and U.K. invasion and occupation of of Iraq. Uh, or the Asian tsunami. I mean, these these huge cataclysmic events. I was, you know, I think as as you are, right? Uh, the journalist who comes in with 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 a notepad, maybe a camera, um, and 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 I'm interviewing other people about their shock. Um, but really, I have this. Re- I've had uh, a reportorial distance. COVID was different. Nobody was outside of that shock. Um, it upended my world as it upended all of our worlds. And in many ways, the world became uncanny and unfamiliar. Freud described uh, the uncanny as that species of frightening in which that which was familiar becomes strange. I mean, think about Times Square uh, during the pandemic. Uh, that is an uncanny apparition. Uh, it, it, it's something familiar that looks completely different. It's empty, uh, one of the busiest places on Earth. But I think there are many kinds of uncanny experiences that we have uh, in in the world today, you know, I I now live in British Columbia. We had a, a an extreme weather event a couple of years ago called it a heat dome, uh, and 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 hundreds of people died, uh, millions of of marine creatures died. Um, uh, but what was most uncanny about the heat dome is it was not our weather. It was like somebody else's weather coming to uh, a temperate rainforest, and so. I thought by using the uncanniness of having a doppelganger, you asked about my doppelganger. I, I, I am perennially confused and conflated with another writer named Naomi Wolf, uh, named Naomi, named Naomi, Naomi Wolf. Um, and, you know, having a, having that identity confusion is an extreme form of uncanniness because what becomes unfamiliar is you. You see people and hear people talking about you, but it's not you. It's very destabilizing. So I thought, well, this is an interesting technique. And she really is less the subject of the book than a literary technique to to get into these other kinds of uh, uh, uncanny forces. Um, should I tell the bathroom story? Please. <laughs> you really want me to do that? <laughs> yeah, so, so the, the first chapter begins telling the story um, where actually I was I was in New York City um, uh, to be part of Occupy Wall Street. I was I was uh, at a march through the financial district um, uh, at the height of Occupy Wall Street, and uh, like uh, other people at that march, uh, I needed to use a, a public restroom, and I was uh, I was in one of these you know skyscrapers, and and I don't remember exactly which building. But while in the restroom, I overheard a couple of people talking about me, being quite unkind, I must say. I mean, they were they were saying very they were they were sort of drawling, like, did you read that article by Naomi Klein? Oh my God, she really doesn't understand our movement. She doesn't understand our demand. And I was sort of frozen in fear, but brought back all of all of my terrible high school memories. You know, these these mean girls were were talking about me. But as I listened, I realized, oh, they're not talking about me. They're talking about 
somebody else. So I, I, you know, I came out of the stall and I met one of their eyes and I said, words that I have had to say, unfortunately, too many times, I think you're talking about Naomi Wolf. Um, but, but in the end, that became quite fitting to me because you know, I think when you, we overhear people speaking about us on social media, we essentially are just reading the graffiti on the on 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 the on the bathroom wall, which is not healthy, and we probably should stop doing that. So I, I think it's fitting that the first time I became aware of the identity confusion uh, uh, in the real world, it was it was actually literally in the bathroom. And we would like to say that this weekend is the 12th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. Naomi, so it's been I'd like going to, on for some time. <laughs> <laughs> Naomi, I'd like to just join Amy in uh, congratulating you on this book. I mean, I know that I'm not alone in thinking this, that when I read it, I realized that it's actually the book that needed uh, to be written. I mean, it's it's amazing the way you're simultaneously disclosive, funny, um, subtle, and so insightful about our present historical moment. So I want to ask about the reasons that you, it's the doppelganger effect uh, mm. that you identify as, of course, not just with Naomi Wolf. Naomi Wolf is almost mm. like incidental to what you come to identify, mm. which is that you recognize in seeing your doppelganger that you were also seeing, quote, in your words, a magnification of many undesirable aspects of our shared culture. So could you just enumerate or list what those undesirable aspects are, of which, I mean, you can select some because they're so numerous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it definitely wouldn't have been worth doing this if it, if, it, if, it, if it wasn't kind of a narrow aperture to, you know, use a film image that would allow us to see much larger forces at work. And I think we all know people who have changed dramatically in the past few years, um, you know, who don't really seem like themselves. I, you know, I think it's less interesting that Naomi Wolf is a seemingly a doppelganger for me for a lot of, to a lot of people's eyes, um, than that she seems to be a doppelganger of her former self, right? That she was a prominent feminist. Um, she was involved in progressive movements. And now here she is, on Steve Bannon's uh, a podcast, in some cases, every single day, like there have been weeks where she's been a guest every single day that he has been broadcasting. I think probably Democracy Now! listeners would be surprised to learn that they published a book together. Um, they put up t-shirts together. So she, you know, her role on Steve, in Steve Bannon's media sphere is almost uh, like a co-host more than a guest. She's a really important figure in this world. But part of the reason we don't know this has to do with this, uh, what I call the, the mirror world and the fact that while they see us, we have chosen for the most part not to see them. And I think that that's very dangerous because these are really important political movements. Steve Bannon is a, is a very able political strategist. He got Donald Trump elected once and he fully intends to do it again. And part of Steve Bannon's strategy is that he is very good at looking at issues and people who have been abandoned by the Democratic Party or even by the left, people who have been mistreated, um, ejected, and saying, come on over to this side, come on over to this side of the glass, and we'll take a little bit of truth. You know, you use that quote that, that, that there's always a little bit of truth mixed in, and we'll mix it up with all of these dangerous lies. Um, but to me, as a lifelong leftist, what concerns me about that is that many of the issues that they are um, co-opting and twisting are issues that I think the left should be more vocal about. 
you know, I had one of my most, um, you know, I'd say like a moment in my in the research where I was listening to hundreds of hours of Bannon's podcast, where I would say I felt most destabilized was when I would hear Bannon um, cut together a montage, an audio montage and a video montage uh, um, of intros and outros of major cable news shows on CNN and MSNBC brought to you by Pfizer, brought to you by Moderna. And you know, his point was to say, you can't trust these corporate media outlets because they are bought and paid for by the drug companies that are trying to get you vaccinated, right? Um, but for me, what was what was chilling about that was that it, that was a doppelganger of the kind of media education that I grew up in. You know, we all read Manufacturing Consent. We had these charts where we, and I mean, Amy, they sounded a little bit like you. They sounded like me. They sounded like Noam Chomsky, except through a warped mirror. And what worried me about that is it really reminded me that I don't think we're doing that kind of um, of, of systems-based media education anymore, where we really are looking at these ownership structures. And if that doesn't happen, then it's going to be co-opted in the mirror world. So, you know, I guess, uh, Nermeen, thank you for your kind words about the book. I'm so glad that it resonated with you. It was a sort of a risk. Um, but I think maybe by being specific, you know, we're all thinking about the people in our lives and, and, and this phenomenon that's, that's affected us all. I think when I look at people who have made this a similar political migration from, from liberalism or leftism over to the Bannon-esque right, I think we often see um, some uh, economic forces at work. We, Naomi Wolf has has quadrupled her following because of this this uh, um, decision, this political decision of hers. Um, she's not the only one. You know, I'm, I'm sure people are thinking of other people. It's actually a really smart business move. Um, and and this is happening within an economic system that has monetized attention. Um, you know, people are trying to build their personal brands because they've been told that they're not going to get a job, that this is the only way they can survive in these roiling capitalist seas. And there, there are a lot of there's a lot of clicks over there. Um, so I think that's some of it. Um, you know, what are the other forces that get magnified? Well, you know, this is a little tricky to say because you know I, I do write. I, you know, this I don't think it, this gives people a pass. Um, but but Wolf is one of these people who has experienced a lot of of shaming and kind of pylons on on left Twitter, or liberal Twitter, or X or whatever it's called, she's really been, I would say, internet bullied. Um, people can say, okay, well, for good reason, she's made all of she's she's spread conspiracies, she's made major factual errors in her book, but I don't think that's necessarily a justification for for cruelty. Um, so I think that's something else that gets magnified because I think when people have an experience that is very, very negative in left or liberal circles where they really get treated almost like they're, 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 they're not human. And that's partly because they're performing themselves as a brand, which is saying, you know, hey, I'm out here, I'm a commodity, I'm a thing. And then people start thinking, well, if you're a thing, I can throw things at you and you won't bleed. Um, you know, I think that that's part of what is magnified here, and that becomes a justification for, I think, an unjustifiable political alliance with extremely dangerous figures who are building a network of far-right political parties who take issues like rightful suspicion of big pharma, rightful anger at big tech, rightful anger at the elites, and flip it to transphobia, xenophobia, racism. You know, and here I'm thinking about figures like Georgia Malone, who is you know, a protege of Steve Bannon's. 
And Naomi, I mean, if you could if you could elaborate on on that point, I mean, one of the failures that you identify uh, is, for instance, uh, the, the Democratic Party or, or progressives generally not focusing on making, for instance, uh, different social media platforms more equitable, more democratic, uh, but rather, you know, when people are deplatformed, including Naomi Wolf, kind of celebrating mm -hmm. their removal. And you say yeah. that believing that once they're deplatformed, they've effectively disappeared is the equivalent of saying that children, children who think that once they close their eyes, the world has disappeared. If you could elaborate on that. Yeah, so I mean, like when I would when I would confess to, to 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 people I knew that I was working on this book, sometimes I would get this strange reaction, like, "Well, why would you give her attention?" Um, and there was this sense that because she was no longer visible in the pages of the New York Times or on you know MSNBC or wherever, um, and because she had been deplatformed on, on on social media that or, or on the social media that we're on, um, that she just didn't exist. And, and, and there was this assumption that we, whoever we are, are, are in control of the attention. And so if, 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 if the spigot gets turned off, then there's no more attention. But because I was following this, what I was seeing was that she had a much, much larger uh, um, a platform than probably she'd had since her star rose in the 1990s and she was advising Al Gore on his presidential run in 2000. Uh, you know what? What Tucker Carlson and Steve Bannon can offer her um, is more than what a lot of liberal media outlets can offer. And she's been on, you know, uh, uh, a Jordan Peterson's podcast. And she's also in these. You know, I, I call it the mirror world because there's kind of a one-to-one -one replica of many of the the social media platforms, the crowdfunding platforms. So she was kicked off Twitter. She immediately got an account on on Getter. Um, uh, and and Getter, they they call themselves the Twitter killer. Um, so I think it is really really reckless to ignore this world because you know it's not like they're just uh, you know it's not like it's a hobby what they're doing there. As Steve Bannon says, the goal is to take power for the next hundred years. So not paying attention to this and not looking at what issues are getting traction there, I think is really reckless. In 2016. Steve Bannon successfully peeled away a portion of the Democratic Party base who had voted for Democrat after Democrat who promised them that they were going to renegotiate or cancel free trade deals that had gutted their communities and offshore jobs. And they didn't do it. Many of them signed more free trade deals. And Steve Bannon saw an opportunity. Uh, you know, I don't think it's, it's about whether or not he personally believes this is uh, you know, an important issue or whether Trump did anything really meaningful in this regard. The issue is they picked up an issue that their opponents had abandoned and used it to political effect. And that is now happening with opposition to big tech, opposition to big pharma, even standing up for free speech, right? And so I think that there need to be, um, you know, and, and, and it's wildly hypocritical because they're the same people who are banning books. Uh, but to me, like, we can't control them, that we can control ourselves and whether or not we are doing a good enough job embodying our own principles. Um, and, and, you know, I think one of the things that happened during the pandemic is that the more misinformation was being spread by the likes of Wolf and Bannon, the more people who see themselves as progressive started just getting into a reactive position where we're just defending the CDC. We're just defending what the government is saying. But in fact, the role of the left is to push for much more, right? 
sure, yes, get vaccinated, wear a mask. But what about fighting for the right to indoor air quality for everybody? What about demanding that schools uh, have smaller classrooms, more outdoor education, more teacher, giving essential workers the raises instead of just the applause, um, the, the right to, I mean, there's, there, you know, or lifting the, the patents on the vaccines. And I know you, you covered this on Democracy Now! consistently, but I think if we're honest, it was the right that organized during the pandemic. You know, I live in Canada now, I'm back in Canada, and you know, we had the trucker convoy that shut down Ottawa for three weeks. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to get into much about the trucker convoy except to say that my, you know, one of the things that occurred to me is, you know, what had happened, what would have happened if there was a robust left that had shut down the cities and demanded that before we got our fourth booster, everybody on this planet got their first COVID vaccine, um, you know, or made any of these other collective uh, demands about truly funding public health care. Universal public health care uh, would have been a good response to the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, I think we have to be a lot more ambitious and a lot less reactive to just what they're doing, the quote unquote, they. Naomi, very quickly before we break, we just have a minute. If you could explain, you mentioned the truck convoy. You mentioned two truck convoys. What do you think principally, why was that so important? What was misrepresented? Oh, that's a little, maybe it's a little bit tricky to explain quickly. But um, but seven months before the famous trucker convoy, uh, the one that you know made it on all, all, all the U.S. talk shows, um, and that was an anti, mainly an anti-vax event, um, there was a, a there was a convoy that was in in British Columbia that was in response to the unmarked graves that were con- whose presences were confirmed at first at uh, the the former the site of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School mm-hmm. and then uh, more unmarked graves confirmed at other uh, form on the grounds of other former uh, so-called residential schools. I say confirmed because the communities always knew. Uh, that there were burial grounds on these uh, geno- the, the, the grounds of these genocidal schools, um, but their presence was confirmed using ground penetrating radar, and there was such an outpouring of of uh, of solidarity uh, in the aftermath of that that there was a, a convoy organized by truckers in British Columbia, uh, hundreds of trucks that went and drove in front of the the, the, for, the closed former residential school in Kamloops. Was called the We Stand in Solidarity Convoy, um, and uh, you know it was it, it came from a place, as I say, and as they said, of solidarity of of of, of wanting to say that this is uh, this atrocity, um, this genocide is not only an issue for First Nations to fight for justice; it should be everybody's business. Um, so it was striking that there was this kind of doppelganger trucker convoy seven months later. But what I say in the book is that some truckers went to both. And so what's interesting to me is the way doppelgangers stand in for the fact that human beings are complicated. Uh, you know, I think my own doppelganger is complicated. You know, she, I think she's done some very good things in her life and she's done some really damaging things. Most, that's true for most people. So I, what interests me as, as, as a political theorist is, you know, what are the systems that encourage the best parts of ourselves, that support that impulse? Towards solidarity and compassion, as opposed to light up the most individualistic parts of ourselves. Naomi Klein, her new book is out just this week. It's called Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. We're back with her in a minute. I wanna see you in your halo. I was hoping we could stay close. But we don't want to 
Lost in the Citadel by Lil Nas X. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh, and we're spending the hour with Naomi Klein. Her new book is just out. It's called Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. Naomi, I wanted to talk to you about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, In July, the Democratic presidential candidate spoke at a press event in New York City and claimed the COVID-19 vaccine is a genetically engineered bioweapon that may have been ethnically targeted to spare people who are Jewish, Ashkenazi Jews, and Chinese. COVID-19, there's an argument that it is ethnically targeted. COVID-19 attacks certain races disproportionately. COVID-19 is targeted to attack uh, Caucasians and and, uh, and uh, black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and, uh, and Chinese. So that's Robert Kennedy. Naomi, you wrote an article before these comments in The Guardian headlined, Beware, We Ignore Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s Candidacy at Our Peril. Um, Now, you write extensively uh, in this piece about his background. It was not just COVID-19 vaccines he was concerned about. He goes way back in his anti-vax um, attitudes and activism. Talk about the significance of this and what you continually say throughout the book and that we ignore these views at our own peril. Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, in a way, uh, he is a doppelganger of his father and uncle. And he's sort of, it's sort of, I see it as a, a kind of a counterfeit politics. Uh, I'm sorry for RK Jr. supporters uh, who are listening don't know how many there are. Um, I think that what he is doing is tapping into a, a lot of um, real uh, fears, angers. Uh, you know, there are times when I listen to him when I'm I can't help nodding along when he's talking about regulatory capture of of, of government agencies um, by the corporations they're supposed to be regulating. That's something I've covered for a long time. Um, you know, or when he's talking about the military industrial complex, I think it's really important. The reason why I call it, you know, a counterfeit politics is that although he is calling this out, if you look at what he's running on, um, you know, this is not Bernie. He is not actually running on a platform of, of significant regulations that would address the crises that he is talking about. Um, it's kind of a libertarian platform. I mean, he ha- isn't even running on universal public health care. Um, you know, if you're worried about uh, if you're worried about big pharma and profiteering, you know, how about running on pharmacare that, that 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 we shouldn't be leaving life saving drugs to the market? But you'll never hear him say something like that. Um, you know, so I think to, for 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 leftists who are frustrated with the centrism of the Democrats, uh, it can seem like this is really an alternative, and I would really, really caution against it. Um, and and look at what he is actually running on. Is he running on raising the minimum wage? And, and it, no, he's not. Um, he's tapping into these uh, the, these real critiques um, and these real issues, like an inflated military budget. But then, you know, his position on Israel, for instance, is just more militarism. Same thing with Steve Bannon, by the way. You know, he talks a great game about the military-industrial complex. 
he's absolutely obsessed with China and positioning the U.S. for, you know, the third world war with China. If you're a serious critic of the military industrial complex, you wouldn't be uh, as focused as Steve Bannon is on 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 China bashing. Um, so, uh, you know, RFK, uh, obviously, with that clip that you played is uh it was extraordinarily um, disturbing, dangerous. A lot of conspiracy culture starts ending up in this uh, kind of anti-Semitic territory, the, the oldest conspiracy theory in the world. You know, what I make the I make the argument in the book that part of what we're dealing with um, with the rise of conspiracy culture, and I call it conspiracy culture, not conspiracy theories, because the the, the theories so wildly. Uh, um, contradict each other. It's just a posture of mistrust and just throwing wild theories at the wall. So one minute COVID is a bioweapon, perhaps, and the next minute it's just a cold, so don't even wear a mask. You really would need to choose if you had a theory between whether or not it was a bioweapon or whether or not it was a cold. But were a bioweapon, presumably you would want to do pretty much anything you can not to be infected. Um, But they never attempt to resolve these glaring contradictions because the point of it is to throw up this kind of a, a, a distraction so that we aren't focused on the, the sort of what I would describe as kind of the conspiracies in plain view. The fact that the, that the pharmaceutical companies uh, um, turned COVID into this profit center. Uh, the fact that these, the, the, despite the fact that so the vaccine de- development was funded with public dollars, all the initial orders were, were from the government there are these outrageous patents on on these vaccines and they should never have been patented in the first place. Um, and I think we need to be really wary of, of being overly credulous. Uh, we know that there are real conspiracies in the world. You've been covering the 50th anniversary of the overthrow of Salvador Allende um, and new documents come out uh, every week that, that show us these you know, behind the scenes meetings. But if we look at that conspiracy, it's a good example. You know, what you see in the documents uh, about the U.S. destabilization campaign of Salvador Allende, it wasn't that there was a, it wasn't that, you know, there was some nefarious goal about depopulating the earth or draining kids of adrenochrome or whatever the conspiracy culture is claiming. Um, It was to protect U.S. copper interests, you know, U.S. telecom interests. It was just capitalism doing its thing. and sometimes it takes a plot to do it, uh, is the way I put it in the book. But coming back to what I was saying earlier about the, the, an absence of basic political education, if people don't understand how capitalism works, if we don't understand that this is a system that is that is really an, uh, um, built to consolidate wealth, um, and it, it will always have a massive underclass. And instead, people have been told that capitalism is just you know Big Macs and freedom and rainbows and everybody getting what they deserve. Then when that system fails them, they're going to be very vulnerable to somebody going, oh, it's all a plot by the Jews or, you know, whatever the conspiracy of the day is. And that's why doing that basic political education and economic education is so critical because it's really our, uh, you know, it's our armor against this conspiracy culture. Well, Naomi, I mean, as you, you I think you, you say in the book at some point, uh, the, the use of the term conspiracy culture is also because uh, one can't call it a conspiracy theory because it's a conspiracy with uh, no theory. So, um, you know, RFK and, and your own uh, doppelganger uh, are emblematic, really, of uh, the number, especially during the pandemic, the number of conspiracies that proliferated and, of course, spread so exponentially so quickly, both because, of course, everybody on the planet practically who was able to do it was on 
line. Um, mm-hmm. So if, if you could speak specifically, conspiracies have always existed. Sure. But talk sure. about the power of conspiracies now just because of their sheer reach combined with, as you say, uh, this uh, lack of education on a, a structure within which to understand what's being said. Absolutely. So I think you're absolutely right, Nermeen, that especially during times that are chaotic, uh, during times of disaster, there are often these wild conspiracy theories that emerge because they claim to make some sense of an event that seems senseless, especially when there's just a huge amount of loss. Um, So our minds reach for those kinds of easy explanations. I've seen that. I saw it after Hurricane Katrina. I saw it after the tsunamis. I saw saw it in Iraq. I've seen it again and again as a reporter. This is different. And what's different is the attention economy. Because when all of this is playing out on platforms, private platforms owned by billionaires um, that have created uh, incentive structures that mean that if you, whoever puts out the most clickable content is going to get the most followers, is going to be able to turn those into subscriptions, be able to monetize them. It, it creates such a huge incentive structure to be that person first out of the gate, making the wildest claim that you possibly can. So that, you know, I would put conspiracy, conspiracy culture within the framework of the disaster capitalism complex that we have talked about before. Um, you know, we've seen in the aftermath of disasters that these players move in and just attempt to profit from disasters. Conspiracy hucksters and influencers are part of the disaster capitalism complex. But it gets very confusing because often what they're talking about is other people (laughs) profiting off of disaster. Uh, So it's a mirror world. It's trippy. um, And so you've got to get a little bit trippy to try to, to map it. And you want to I want to ask you, first of all, like what, you know, before we end, what you, uh, you know, the main conclusions of, of the book are. But I, I'd also like to, to, to read, I mean, your, your own conclusion, one of the things that you say, ultimately, it's almost as if you express gratitude towards Naomi Wolf, because what uh, of the reflection, the interest in her and what it revealed, uh, uh, not just about our present moment, but also. Uh, uh, yourself uh, within this social media world. And and at the end, you you quote John Berger, who you say taught you a long time ago, that calm itself is a form of resistance. So first of all, what should people take away, the main takeaway from the book? And and that point itself, calm is a form of resistance. How is one to attain that calm? Mm. Well, I think maps help, right? And this is a, a very first—it's—it's uh, a—it's a first draft of a map of of, of uh, the coast, the post-COVID world. Um, you know, it's, it's just through one person's eyes, and 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 it's mapping is collective work. So it's been really great to be out here talking to people, reading articles that people have written, uh, tell you know, adding to it and adding layers. So I think we're sense making. We're making sense of the way we have changed, or the way our world has changed. Um, but I think the big takeaway from the book is all of this is about not seeing, you know, whether we are creating doppelgangers of ourselves online and performing perfected versions, it, that's a way of, of distracting ourselves from the weight of our political moment. You know, listening to your, your headlines, uh, Amy and Nermeen, you know, to quote Antonio Gutierrez, it's an atlas of human suffering. It's so hard to look at the reality that we are in right now with the overlay of, of endless wars and climate disasters and massive inequality. Um, and so whether we're making up fantastical conspiracy theories 
or getting lost in our own reflections. It's all about not looking at that sort of that reality that is only bearable if we get outside of our own heads and and collectively organize it uh, and you know rebuild our social movements so that they can offer people material improvements to their lives. That's the only way you know we fight these surging conspiracies. It's not going to be fact checkers or content moderators. It's it's going to be a robust left, and I feel I can say that on Democracy Now. And we just have a minute, but let's end where we started with that term doppelganger and what more you want to say about it, and if Naomi Wolf has responded. You know, it's interesting. She she, she, she posted something this morning, actually, or maybe it was yesterday, um, casting this as a sort of some sort of a, like my work as some sort of being part of a, a plot to attack her, um, which isn't surprising, you know, and she's using it to, 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 um, well, okay. I think that this must be very hard for her is what I would say. Um, and, you know, I have really tried to uh, reiterate that she is a case study, an interesting one, but this is not about her. Um, I personally think she's been treated quite cruelly. Uh, I'm not interested in, um, in, in adding to that. Um, you know, I do think that we need to hold one another accountable, but that doesn't mean that we have a right to be cruel. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope that if she were to actually read the book, she would see uh, that it isn't perhaps the way it's been portrayed as being like, a, you know, a, a book length attack on her. It certainly isn't. You know, doppelganger stories are always We have to leave it there, Naomi. Of- um, <laughs> Naomi Klein, author of Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. Mm-hmm. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Okay, that's a lot to take in. Yes, do you want to see now? What I know today? Today is democracy now, yes. The whole thing. The whole thing, yes. Okay. I'll just say thank you, Bernie Sanders, again for what he said. Yesterday on All In with Chris Hayes. Okay. Here we go. This is for today. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Tonight, for the first time in our history, we will strike all three of the big three at once. We are using a new strategy, the stand-up strike. We will call on select facilities, locals, or units to stand up and go on strike. The United Auto Workers have begun a historic targeted strike at GM, Ford, and Stellantis. We'll get the latest. Then to the climate emergency as thousands prepare for a major march here in New York Sunday to end fossil fuels. We'll speak to a climate scientist taking part, just arrested in West Virginia for chaining herself to a drill in order to shut down construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. We haven't even breached 1.5 degrees Celsius, and we're seeing such extreme impacts from climate change this summer. The flooding in Vermont, the fires in Maui, the fires in Canada, the flooding in Libya. I mean, I could keep going, (laughs) and I don't want to. Um, We really need to halt climate change where it is. And we'll look at a major victory for student climate activists. 
After 10 years of student activism, NYU just committed to divesting from the fossil fuel industry. Then we go to Washington, where Hunter Biden's been indicted on gun charges, while Republican lawmakers have launched an inquiry into impeaching President Biden. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Auto Workers has launched a historic strike against the big three U.S. automakers. At midnight, about 12,700 workers committed to a work stoppage at three locations, a GM factory in Missouri, a Stellantis complex in Ohio, and a Ford assembly plant near Detroit, Michigan. The union says up to 146,000 workers could ultimately join the strike unless auto executives end a two-tier system for wages and benefits and agree to improve pensions and working hours. Joining the picket lines was Michigan Congress member Rashida Tlaib, whose father was a longtime assembly line worker at Ford and a UAW member. Now we got tears. We don't have cost of living adjustment, which has been part of every UAW contract since 1948 until 2009 when they said, look, we'll sacrifice. We'll take a hit so we can keep you all afloat. Not that they need help to stay afloat. The big three is, you know, literally turning their backs on them. They're making record profits. It's about time to reward the very people for the reason they were even able to, again, survive, again, the Great Recession. We'll have more on the UAW strike after headlines. In Libya, the death toll from catastrophic flooding in the coastal city of Derna soared to more than 11,000. More than 10,000 others remain missing. Al Jazeera reports the two dams that burst early Monday amidst unprecedented heavy rains were more than a half century old and had not undergone maintenance since 2002. On Thursday, the UN's World Meteorological Organization said most of the deaths could have been avoided if Libya had a normally operating meteorological service able to launch evacuations. In Phoenix, Arizona, the Maricopa County Department of Public Health reports at least 202 people died due to this year's unprecedented summer heat wave. Another 356 suspected heat-related deaths are under investigation. Nearly half the confirmed deaths were among people without permanent homes. More than 50 occurred indoors, usually when people lack air conditioning. Jeff Johnston is Maricopa County's chief medical examiner. It's hard to ignore 31 days of above 110 degrees in a row um, and really shattering all of the previous records. But at the same time, it's really, really important to uh, not lose focus on the increased number of vulnerable people in our society to these kinds of things. In more climate news, internal documents from Exxon reveal executives, including former CEO Rex Tillerson, secretly worked to sow doubt about the severity of climate change, even as the oil giant publicly acknowledged the link between fossil fuels and the climate crisis. Tillerson would go on to become Secretary of State under former President Trump. The Wall Street Journal reports between 2006 and 2000. 16 Exxon executives and their internal communications work to counter the notion that humans should curtail oil and gas use to help the planet. In a statement, the Center for Climate Integrity demanded Exxon be held accountable, adding, quote, this damning new evidence of Exxon's climate lies shows for decades it's been official company policy for executives to undermine clients' climate climate science, minimize the dangers of their oil and gas business, and protect company profits at all costs with no concern for the catastrophic impact their actions would have on humanity, they said. Here in New York, 
Hundreds of climate activists blocked the entrances to Citibank's headquarters in Manhattan Thursday. At least 25 protesters were arrested. Democracy Now! spoke to organizer Alec Conan after he was released from police custody. Just this week, um, there are thousands, potentially tens of thousands of people that have died in Libya from extreme flooding that is being driven by the climate crisis. And the climate crisis we know is being driven by the fossil fuel industry. And the fossil fuel industry cannot survive without the financial backing of banks like Citibank. Thursday's action was part of a series of planned climate protests including what's coming up Sunday, March to End Fossil Fuels here in New York City. That march is part of the larger global fight to end fossil fuels, which will see actions take place around the world. We'll have more on the planned events later in the broadcast. Federal prosecutors have indicted President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, on felony charges of illegally possessing a handgun and making false statements in order to obtain a revolver in 2018. The charges carry a maximum sentence of 25 years in prison and fines of up to $750,000. Special counsel David Weiss brought the charges after a Trump-appointed federal judge in July rejected a deal that would have seen Hunter Biden plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax counts in order to escape more serious charges. It's the first time in U.S. history the Justice Department's criminally charged a child of a sitting president. We'll have more on Hunter Biden later in the broadcast. In Italy, the small island of Lampedusa is asking the Italian government for help after 7,000 asylum seekers arrived by boat over a two-day period this week and are living in precarious conditions. The island's population is typically just over 6,000 people. Arrivals in Spain's Canary Islands also tripled in the first half of the month. Racist rhetoric against black Africans by Tunisian President Kais Saied has helped drive the increase in asylum seekers hoping for a safer home in Europe. In related news, 40 survivors of a refugee shipwreck have filed a lawsuit accusing the Greek Coast Guard of deliberately neglecting to save passengers and likely causing their fishing boat to capsize when sailors attempted to tow the vessel. Hundreds of people perished in the June 14th tragedy. This is one survivor's account. They put out a rope and pulled us. It had weight with a big number of people. They quickly pulled us and the boat capsized. It moved to the right, to the left, to the right, and it capsized. People started to fall on each other. It totally capsized. Because the people were on top of each other, people were screaming. People were drowning each other. It was nighttime and there were waves. It was scary. In Wisconsin, the Republican-controlled state Senate voted Thursday to oust Megan Wolf, the state's top election official. Wisconsin's Democratic Attorney General Josh Call immediately filed a lawsuit seeking to block her ouster. The election's administrator position is a nonpartisan office, but after Donald Trump narrowly lost in Wisconsin to Joe Biden in 2020, Republicans and far-right interests began harassing Megan Wolf and spreading misinformation about election fraud. In more news from Wisconsin, Planned Parenthood will start performing abortions again next week in a major win for reproductive rights there. Following last year's overturning of Roe v. Wade at the U.S. Supreme Court, Wisconsin Republicans used an 1849 state law to justify an abortion ban, putting providers and patients in limbo. This is Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin President Tanya Atkinson. The uncertainty about the enforceability of Wisconsin's 1849 abortion law has been devastating for Wisconsin women and people across the gender spectrum who need abortion care. A ruling by the Dane County Circuit Court in July made it clear that the 1849 law is not enforceable 
for voluntary abortions. And on Capitol Hill, Democrats have introduced legislation to provide $16 billion in emergency child care funds annually for the next five years. This comes just two weeks before billions of dollars in pandemic-era funding for daycares is set to expire, potentially forcing tens of thousands of child care programs to shut down, impacting over 3 million children. Senator Patty Murray co-authored the bill. We have a child care crisis in America, and that crisis could soon go from bad to worse as essential relief for the sector expires at the end of this month. So we are here today to sound the alarm and put forward a common sense solution before child care providers might have to close their doors, before kids lose their child care slots, and before parents face higher costs or simply be forced to leave their jobs to take care of their kids. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The UAW, the United Auto Workers, has launched an historic targeted strike against the big three U.S. automakers, Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, which is the parent company of Chrysler. On Thursday, UAW President Sean Fain announced strikes at three facilities, a GM plant in Wentzville, Missouri, a Stellantis complex in Toledo, Ohio, and a Ford assembly plant in Wayne, Michigan. About 12,700 workers are taking part in this initial strike, but Fain said the strike could be expanded. Tonight, for the first time in our history, we will strike all three of the big three at once. We are using a new strategy, the stand-up strike. We will call on select facilities, locals, or units to stand up and go on strike. This strategy will keep the companies guessing. It will give our national negotiators maximum leverage and flexibility in bargaining. And if we need to go all out, we will. The strike comes during a highly profitable period for the big three automakers. According to the UAW, the three auto companies made a combined $21 billion in profits in the first six months of the year. The unions demanding higher wages, a return to traditional pension plans, and a shorter work week. This is Jesse Ramirez, president of UAW Local 230. It's a long time coming. Um, our members are owed um, what they gave up during the bankruptcies. We gave up, uh, we gave up pay, we gave up COLA, we gave up pensions. Um, we've, it, it, tears were introduced into our, into our uh, location here. So our, it's about time that all the sacrifice that our members gave to this company to bring it out of bankruptcies and now one of the most profitable car companies, it's time that our members get what's owed to them. On Wednesday, UAW President Sean Fain addressed auto workers about the need to strike. I'm at peace with the decision to strike if we have to, because I know that we're on the right side in this battle. It's a battle of the working class against the rich. The haves versus the have-nots, the billionaire class against everybody else. And again, in talking about that, this, this class warfare, people accuse us and say this is class warfare. There's been class warfare going on in this country for the last 40 years. The billionaire class has been taking everything and leaving everybody else to fight for the scraps. And when I talk about that, 
There's one more piece of scripture I, I like. It reminds me of in Matthew 19, 23, 24, which states, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? I have to believe that answer, at least in part, is because in the kingdom of God, no one hoards all the wealth while everybody else suffers and starves. In the kingdom of God, no one puts themselves in a position of total domination over the entire community. In the kingdom of God, no one forces others to perform endless backbreaking work just to feed their families or put a roof over their heads. That world's not the kingdom of God. That world is hell. Living paycheck to paycheck, scraping to get by, that's hell. Choosing between medicine and rent is hell. Working seven days a week for 12 hours a day for months on end is hell. Having your plant closed down and your family scattered across the country is hell. Being made to work during a pandemic and not knowing if you might get sick and die or spread the disease to your family is hell. And enough is enough. It's time to decide what kind of world we want to live in. And it's time to decide what we're willing to do to get it. That was UAW President Sean Fain, who took office in March. We're joined now by two guests. Alex Press is staff writer for Jacobin Magazine, where she covers labor. Her new piece headlined, The UAW Strike Matters for the Entire U.S. Working Class. Press was a union organizer before becoming a reporter. And Marcelina Pedraza is with us. She works as an electrician at a Ford assembly plant in Chicago, a member of UAW Local 551, and a fourth-generation union worker. Marcelina, let's begin with you in Chicago. Your response to what happened last night at midnight, thousands of auto workers going out on strike in a targeted strike against three of the automakers, the three major, the three, the big three automakers. Talk about the significance of this. Uh, yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. I love the show. Um, yeah, this is an historic moment, as you said, the first time in history that uh, all big three um, auto workers will be striking and it's it's inspiring to see you know the solidarity uh, between all of the the auto workers, not just auto workers, but workers from from all around. You know, um, this is uh, going to make um, it's going to be beneficial to us. You know, we're going to keep fighting, and and I hope this this strategy will work. I'm going to trust the process. I know a lot of members um, might be disappointed that that we weren't called, but. You know, we, that still could be a possibility. Um, and we're ready if and when we'll be called to walk out next. So talk about this strategy of the targeted strike. We've never seen this before in U.S. history. And also, do you think a change in the leadership of the UAW? Uh, Sean Fain became president in March uh, has made the difference here. Yes, for sure. I mean, since the uh, our newly elected um President Sean Fain, 
said, you know, this is going to keep them, the companies, keep them guessing, you know, and, you know, since he was elected uh, on the campaign, the one member, one vote campaign from uh, UAWD, Night All Workers for Democracy, um, I think it's it's made a huge difference, you know, where members are seeing um, more transparency, you know, we're getting constant updates, which we, you know, haven't seen in the past couple contracts that I've been involved with. So the members are, are fired up and we're ready and we're united. It's a really key point that you're making, Marcelina, that Sean Fain won in the first direct election of the UAW's leadership in the organizations, in the union's 88-year history. I want to go to the Ford CEO, Jim Farley, who was speaking on CNBC earlier this week, claiming the United Auto Workers Union proposal could bankrupt the company. If we signed up for the UAW's request, instead of making money and distributing $75,000 in profit sharing in the last 10 years, we would have lost $15 billion and gone bankrupt by now. Uh, the average pay would be nearly $300,000 fully fringed for a four-day work week. There is no per way. Employee, per employee. Per employee. Yeah. This is our fully tenured school teacher in the U.S. makes $66,000. Some of the military or firemen makes mid-50,000. This is four or five times, six times what they make. There's no way we can be sustainable as a company. That's why we put our proposal in two weeks ago to say, look, you want you want us to choose bankruptcy over supporting our workers? Here's our proposal. Let's work through this. We've heard nothing. That's the CEO of GM, uh, Jim Farley. Uh, last night, Sean Fain was asked about his comments, and he said that the um, uh, that the labor um, pay was something like five percent of what the companies pay out. Uh, Alex Press, you're a staff writer for Jacobin. You wrote this new piece, the UAW strike matters for the entire um, U.S. workforce. If you can talk about what Farley is contending. Yeah, so I mean, Sean Fain said last night in response to those comments, every word out of their mouths is a lie. And I think in this case, it's absolutely true. Jim Farley was paid tens of millions of dollars last year. There's no sense of bankruptcy on the table um, for these companies. You know, I think it's important to think about when we talk about strikes that are about ending tears, especially, which is what's at play here with the auto workers. You know, $300,000 a year, this is a calculation for the top rate with all benefits translated into monetary value. Um, there are workers on the assembly lines right now who are making $22 an hour with very few benefits. These are workers who can spend up to eight years as temporary employees not given access to full-time benefits and pay because of these tiers. They might work 60, 70-hour weeks alongside people paid much better. Um, this destroys a union, right? It rots it from the inside. Workers distrust each other. It's very hard um, to keep oneself together um, in such a situation. So Jim Farley, a man who has paid tens of millions of dollars, is contesting that he can afford to give workers a few extra dollars an hour. Um, and so I think there are many specificities when you go into the list of demands here that it's it, you don't have to be um, all in and a, a member of the UAW's reform leadership um, to, uh, to sense that, you know, this is a lie. Even Bloomberg itself talked about how real wages have been down 30% for UAW members um, over the past 10 years. Um, and again, Bloomberg 
uh, said that the companies can afford this. And just to say, uh, Jim Farley is uh, the Ford CEO. That's where Marcelina works. Yes. Made something like $21 million in total compensation last year, according to the Detroit um, News. Uh, while Stellantis CEO Carlos Tavares made $24.8 million. Um, can you talk about why 2023, this historic strike, relates so directly to the 2009 financial crisis and what UAW agreed to give back because the company said they would go bankrupt. Sure. So there were a number of concessions that the workers agreed to, that the UAW agreed to, you know, quote unquote, to save these companies, right? They were failing, they were facing bankruptcy. Um, Some of the things the workers gave up included um, cost of living allowances, COLA, as we call it. Um, So, you know, as inflation um, has been high lately, these workers are losing more and more money every every year in real wages. They introduced tiers, as I mentioned, you know, workers who are working alongside the, the older workers, the more senior workers, and being paid less, they lack pensions, retirees are suffering. Um, these are all things that were supposed to be temporary, right? The company said, as soon as we're profitable, we'll give this back, right? It was this sense of partnership. Um, That partnership was a poison pill for workers. And the UAW new leadership knows that. Um, And they're saying, hey, you're very profitable. You know, it is very clear that these companies are making historic profits. You know, it's up almost 100% as far as their North American profits over the past decade versus the decade prior. And the leadership and the rank and file are saying, okay, you lied. Um, You didn't give it back. So now we're taking it back. Senator Bernie Sanders has called on the U.S. public to support a strike by UAW members. If the big three automakers, General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, do not provide reasonable contracts to address long-standing inequities in the industry, there will be a strike. And all of us should support the strikers. The UAW members will be fighting not only for themselves, but against a corporate culture of arrogance, cruelty, and selfishness, which is causing massive and unnecessary pain for the majority of working families throughout our country. Their fight against corporate greed is our fight. Their victory will resonate all across the economy, impact millions of workers from coast to coast, and help create a more just and equitable economy. So that's Bernie Sanders. Alex Press, so you've got the three targeted plants um, in Wayne, Michigan, Ford, 3,300 workers. In Toledo, Ohio, 5,800 workers at Stellantis, makers of Chrysler. And in Wentzville, uh, 3,600 workers striking against GM. Explain this overall strategy and then how it could expand to over 150,000 workers. Sure. So as as we've heard, it's called the stand up strike. That's what the UAW is calling it. Um, it is never tried before. Right. You know, it's it's a callback to the union's origins, which were in the Flint sit down strikes. Right. There are these incredible photos, you know, that you can find in archives and, and the history books of workers sitting down in the plants. They're reading newspapers. They're drinking coffee. They wouldn't leave. Right. This was a targeted strike 
on particular plants that the entire supply chain, the entire supply line for auto relied upon. And it was an enormous success. It built the UAW. It inspired copycats in other unions. And it largely reignited um, and, and built the 20th century U.S. labor movement. So Sean Fain has said, this is our generation's answer to the sit-down strike. Now, right now, as we've said, there's just under 13,000 workers on strike. This is an escalation tactic, right? Sean Fain has said that not only once a week, but several times a week, he could call out new plants. Every time one of these companies gives an insulting proposal at the bargaining table, Sean Fain and the leadership can stand up and say, all right, new, new plants are out. You know, it's this increase of leverage, right? You know, there are risks, of course. I mean, 150,000 person strike all at once certainly would be powerful. It would be important for the workers because it would be such a mass of them. There'd be, they'd be, have their communities with them. You know, it'd be so visible. But at the same time, it's very expensive. So these workers right now are still earning paychecks and the workers who are on strike, they're getting money out of the strike fund, $500 a week. But this helps sustain the strike, right? And so I think, you know, so far we've seen, I was a little bit of a skeptic about this and we've already seen that it's paying some dividends here. You know, there have been a lot of reports from UAW members in certain plants that their plant management has been given fake lists of what plants are going to be targeted, that it's messing up the supply chain, that there's sort of confusion and panic among the companies. And so this is really, I mean, to use a war metaphor, it's guerrilla warfare. Marcelina, um, you come from a blue collar family, fourth generation union worker. For you, the significance of this moment, not only uh, for the auto workers, but can you talk about you see yourself and the auto workers setting a model for uh, pe- working people across the country? Yes. Yeah, so I come from uh, the southeast side of Chicago, which you know was once the uh, you know biggest steel producer in the nation, and I've seen you know my my family, my father and grandfather worked in the mills, and I've seen those those plants close down, and I've seen what it can do to a community. You know, and and I used to work at the Belvedere assembly plant, and now that plant has been idled, and we don't know what's going to happen there. And that's a much smaller city than Chicago, obviously, but it's it's going to be devastating to that community. So this is an important moment in in history for us to win back a lot of the um, things we've lost in these past few years. You know, it's huge for the labor movement, and it's it's uniting workers all across the world. You know, we've had a Solidarity from Brazilian auto workers, Mexican auto workers, and just workers of of all kinds. So it's just it's going to be make a huge impact on on working families. Alex Press, before we go, put this in the context of union activism around the country and around the world this year, almost unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, in the United States, not unprecedented, but certainly unlike anything we've seen in several decades, certainly in my lifetime. You know, we have still the massive double strike in Hollywood. You know, that is hundreds of thousands of workers, 160,000 just in SAG-AFTRA, another 12,000 of the Hollywood writers. We've seen other strikes, too, across the country, and we've seen near strikes. You know, the Teamsters at UPS came very close to striking, and in doing so, won an unprecedentedly strong contract. Right. Um, And, you know, I think I always tell people to think on a bigger timeline than, say, an electoral cycle when we talk about this. This is the culmination of years of this rising working class, progressive, socialist movement that, you know, you can draw through line through 
Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, the Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns, and now a rising fighting working class organized labor movement that is not just clawing back concessions, but going on the offensive. And you really, when you get deep down into these movements, you see a lot of them are the same people throughout these years. And so this really, you know, a big part of it is also the pandemic clarified the lines of class and also heightened the risks for workers like auto workers who had to risk, as Sean Fain said, the, the possibility that they would catch a disease at work and die or spread it to their family, all while their employers, the CEOs and even the plant managers got to work from home. There was very little risk at all. So this is a, a sort of, I think, expression of pent up frustration and reform efforts and organizing. And, you know, I think to just put an Put it to underline it here. I would just say that they have a lot of ground to make up the auto workers, and they're dead set on trying to do it. And finally, the video game programmers, the significance of them if they go out on strike, who they are. Yeah, I mean, this is again, that's a reflection of, you know, the white collar workers who have been organizing new unions in mass, you know, in a really remarkable way. We might think that video game programmers have very little in common with, say, auto workers. But these are both sets of workers who, if you if you read about what the video game developers are going through, massive overwork, incredible stress, incredible pressure and huge profits for their employers while they don't see any of their fair share. Um, so I, there's many new union campaigns to look out for. And as, as um, we've heard already on this program, you know, when the U- United Auto Workers strike and if they win, which I believe that they will, that has effects for everybody else. The UAW is the biggest industrial union in the United States. They historically have played a precedent setting, pace setting role. Um, for the entire working class. And so that's, you know, it's why we all have to be out there on the picket lines and otherwise supporting them. Um, it'll help us too. Alex Press, labor reporter at Jacobin Magazine, will link to your latest article, The UAW Strike Matters for the Entire U.S. Working Class. And Marcelina Pedraza, electrician at Ford Assembly Plant in Chicago, member of UAW Local 551. Coming up, Thousands prepare for a major march in New York Sunday to end fossil fuels. We'll speak to a climate scientist just arrested in West Virginia for chaining herself to a drill uh, to protest the construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. And we'll speak to NYU students who've just forced New York University to divest from fossil fuel. This is Democracy Now! Back in a minute. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. 
ahead of a major March Sunday in New York City to escalate the fight to end fossil fuels. Hundreds of climate activists blocked the entrances to Citibank's headquarters in Manhattan Thursday as part of a push to end financing for the fossil fuel industry. At least 25 people were arrested, including Alec Conan, co-director of Stop the Money Pipeline. He spoke to Democracy Now! after his release. Citibank is the world's second largest funder of fossil fuels. Since the Paris Agreement was signed seven years ago, which was supposed to be a pivotal turning point in the climate story, Citibank has loaned more than $332 billion to the coal, oil and gas companies that are fueling the climate crisis and fighting climate action at every turn. And we've been engaging with City for years, talking to their senior leadership, um, encouraging them to listen to us and to start passing policies to stop financing fossil fuel expansion. But they have not listened. And so uh, today um, we descended on their headquarters and we blocked 12 entrances to their headquarters and prevented many, many hundreds of their workers from being able to enter the building um, for an hour or two hours also this week, some 400 scientists endorsed the demands of Sunday's March to End Fossil Fuels, part of the global fight to end fossil fuels, which will see actions take place around the world. In an open letter to President Biden, they noted he had vowed to listen to the science in tackling the climate crisis, but, quote, it's clear the crisis is spiraling out of control and the policies of your administration, they said, with regard to fossil fuels, fail to align with what the science tells us must happen to avert calamity, unquote. For more, we're joined by one of the signatories to this letter, Rose Abramoff. She's an earth scientist who was just arrested for chaining herself to a drill in order to shut down construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia, which will carry two billion cubic feet of frack gas across Appalachia. This comes after she was fired in January from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory after urging other scientists to take action on climate change. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Dr. Rose Abramoff. It's great to have you with us. If you can talk about 400 scientists have endorsed this march on Sunday, and this is kicking off a week of climate action. Um, what your demands are and the significance of you all being scientists, many other groups have also endorsed this march. Thank you for having me on, Amy. Um, yeah, so this letter that some 400 scientists have signed is actually very simple. It's one of our shorter letters. Um, it simply asks the Biden administration to meet the demands of the March to End Fossil Fuels, which are essentially to stop federal approval for new fossil fuel projects and repeal permits for um, major projects like the Willow Project and the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, um, to phase out fossil drilling on our public lands and waters, to declare a climate emergency, um, and to design an energy transition that protects workers' rights, um, which might relate to your earlier segment. And um, the reason why, you know, we could get into the science of it, we don't actually spend a lot of time in this letter talking about how the continued use of fossil fuels puts us at greater risk of devastating heat and flooding, crop failure, climate migration, um, you know, the message is very simple. We feel like the science has come to such a complete consensus and we just want fossil fuel, fossil fuels to stop. 
So you were arrested, Rose Abramoff, just a week ago when you joined, uh, what, four other activists to block construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia. This is one of the favorite projects of Joe Manchin, the most um, receives most oil and gas funding of any senator uh, in the U.S. Congress. Can you talk about your action? Sure. Yeah, I was locked to um, the drill poised to go under the Greenbrier River, which is the longest undammed river in the eastern United States. A lot of this pipeline overlies this karst geology, which is a very kind of vulnerable um, and difficult substrate to drill through um, and, and, you know, poses a lot of vulnerability for the local environment. And then, of course, we have the basic climate impact of the 90 or so million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per year, which we can't afford if we want to meet our climate goals or come anywhere close to meeting our climate goals. Um, and so I was locked on. There were actually five um, elder women who were part of the rocking chair rebellion who were um, locked on or blocking um, with me. And, um, you know, we all felt that this pipeline is emblematic of the larger struggle to transition away from fossil fuels um, that we're failing in that struggle right now. Um, and, you know, Senator Manchin, as you said, the champion of the MVP has received more money from methane gas pipelines than any other lawmaker. Um, and so, you know, there's really, it, it's really egregious that this is still happening. Um, from a scientific perspective, it's a no brainer that we shouldn't be expanding fossil fuels full stop. Um, you know, added to the carbon risk is really the cost um, to ratepayers and taxpayers because this needs to become a stranded asset if we're ever going to meet our climate goals. So, you know, this pipeline, which is being built now, really can't and shouldn't be put into service. I mean, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin recently went to the construction site to speak about how the project is on track, will provide jobs. Uh, the company says it wants to finish construction to restore the environment. Your response to these kinds of statements? Right. Uh, well, I don't think that it, it's at all accurate to say that building this pipeline will restore the environment. I think it'll do exactly the opposite. Um, and what's left of this pipeline now is still hundreds of water crossings, which are in the sort of riskiest types of um, construction to the lo for the local environment. And then, of course, there's the emissions burden of this pipeline, which I think is fairly obviously a negative impact on the environment. Um, you know, locals don't want this pipeline. The resistance to this pipeline is primarily local. And, you know, it's also been primarily very effective. I, I sort of find it heartening that this pipeline is six years behind schedule and billions of dollars over budget, in part because of these, you know, small locally organized actions, such as the one that we um, participated in. I wanted to ask you about one of our news headlines today. We talked about the internal documents from Exxon revealing that executives, including um, Trump's former Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, who was the former CEO uh, um, of Exxon, uh, secretly worked to sow doubt about the severity of climate change, even as Exxon publicly acknowledged the link between fossil fuels and the climate crisis. He would go on to become Secretary of State. The Wall Street Journal reports between 2006 and 16, Exxon executives and their internal communications attempted to push back against the notion that humans needed to curtail oil and gas use to help the planet. Um, if you can respond to this. Sure. 
First of all, I find it pretty astounding that this article came out in the Wall Street Journal. Um, I'm actually quite heartened that the notoriously business-focused readership of the Wall Street Journal is interested in Exxon's basically decades-long conspiracy to cover up the climate crisis. It makes me feel like we're making some progress and moving towards this shared reality, sense of reality, at least of what is what what Exxon's intentions are. Um, and yeah, secondly, I don't at all find it shocking that Exxon's continuing to downplay climate change as late as this last decade. Um, in fact, I would argue that if you did another expose in 10 or so years of communications that are happening right now at these companies, you would find a continued you know, utter lack of intention to transition their energy holdings. Um, and so, and you know, this to me is just like one more line of evidence. There was a study earlier this year in the journal Science um, that showed that Exxon's internal climate models in the 70s were as accurate as anyone else's in the scientific community at that time. And yet, you know, they continued to fund misinformation think tanks and, and as this article says, never publicly acknowledged climate change until the mid-2000s. So... Well, well, I feel like the lesson that we should take from all this is that fossil fuel companies like Exxon have no intention of transitioning their energy holdings on their own, that we have to force them to do it. Finally, you're going to be joining us March on Sunday. Uh, but Rose Abramoff, was it worth all that you've done um, uh, being fired in January from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory after urging other um, after urging other scientists uh, to speak out around climate change and to take action on it. Are you sorry for what you did? Um, I'm not. I, I feel like I've tried everything that I could do in order to get this message across and to, you know, get like get the message out to people that climate activists aren't crazy hippies that you know and scientists aren't exaggerating that this is a serious issue that we need to address now i feel like i did everything that i could within the context of behaving well as a scientist you know educational programs policy reports city council petitions and marches i wouldn't feel the need to risk my job with activism, you know, to risk felony level charges by locking myself to a pipeline drill if I felt like the voice of the scientific community was being properly heard. So, so I stand by my actions. Dr. Rose Abramoff, I want to thank you so much for being with us, Earth Scientist. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to a major victory for climate activists here in New York when NYU, New York University, announced its plans to divest from fossil fuels after facing over a decade of pressure from student advocates. The chair of the NYU Board of Trustees announced the decision in an August letter addressed to Sunrise NYU and acknowledge them for their work over the years. For more, we're joined by two of the people who are key to this campaign. Alicia Colomer is a co-founder of Sunrise NYU, managing director of Fossil Free Research. And Dylan Wabi is also a co-founder and hub director of Sunrise NYU. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Alicia, let's begin with you. The significance of, well, what exactly did NYU agree to do? And talk about your organizing leading to this. Yes, thank you for having me. So the fossil fuel industry continues to deny and delay climate action, as we just heard. And it's very important for universities to put their money where their mouth is and actually invest in a just green energy future that they're preparing their students to enter, not continue investing in the industry that is destroying our future. So what NYU has committed to do is to stop giving more money to the industry that is destroying our future. And that is why it is such a crucial decision. 
But this decision comes after 10 years of student activism and organizing at NYU, and it shouldn't have taken a decade for them to be able to finally make this announcement. And the announcement was what? And were you surprised? I mean, this is one of the wealthiest universities in the United States, certainly one of the most expensive for tuition. Were you surprised, Alicia, that they congratulated the chair of the board, congratulated NYU Sunrise? You're the co-founder of that organization. Yes, I was definitely surprised because in most university divestment announcements, student activists aren't recognized in the decision. So it was very gratifying to read that letter from Bill Berkeley himself, the chair of our board, congratulating the successes of Sunrise NYU in getting here. And I think that recognition is very well deserved because we have spent so many years building this great organization and running this amazing campaign. And we genuinely could not never have gotten this win without the work of so many student organizers who did everything from organizing protests and rallies to collecting over 2,000 signatures on our petition to working with our student government assembly in the Office of Sustainability. And it just was so many years of work leading up to this decision. And it was very gratifying that the chair of our board was able to recognize that. And Dylan Wabi, your response as well as another of the co-founders of Sunrise NYU. Sunrise NYU is nothing but our people. To be honest, we don't even have a consistent place to meet within NYU. We meet in an empty auditorium, and every now and then it's full with some sort of presentation, and we have to improvise. But we have an incredible leadership and incredible membership. And on top of that, we work with other progressive student organizations, and we work with the unions on campus, the contract faculty union, the graduate student union, adjunct union, and others. And through this broad coalition is ultimately what forced the Board of Trustees to sit down with us and led to this decision. And Alicia Colmer, if you can talk about um, the efforts to block fossil fuel corporations from funding university research on the climate crisis. Earlier this year, a report by Data for Progress and Fossil Free Research, your group, looked into the influence of big oil and other polluters, what influence they have on higher education. Definitely. So as you were just talking about with Rose, uh, fossil fuel companies have continued to sow misinformation about climate change in order to deny climate action. And one of the ways they do this is by funding research at universities that leads for false climate solutions and helps them continue business as usual. And for them, business as usual is the continued destruction of our planet, right? Um, so policymakers and legislators, they read these reports that come from prestigious universities, and they are much more likely to believe a quote unquote climate research document if it at the top of the document, it says MIT or Harvard, rather than it had a direct Exxon branding, though it might as well have a direct Exxon branding because all of that research is directly funded by these big oil companies. And so what we're trying to do is stop that pipeline, stop the fossil fuel money from coming and polluting our universities in the first place so that universities can become real climate leaders and so that universities can create real innovation, real climate solutions and lead us to a just energy transition. And that's why we're demanding that universities stop taking fossil fuel money for climate research. Uh, finally, Dylan Wabi, what else do you think needs to be said as we move into what's happening on Sunday, this major march? And what inspired you to get involved with the whole issue of climate change? I think I would encourage every single student 
to get organized and join the movement. There's over 100 Sunrise chapters across the country, and there's other incredible groups, Extinction Rebellion, uh, YDSA and DSA chapters. And it's really through community organizing that we will have a voice uh, YDSA and DSA chapters, and it's really through community organizing that we will have a voice. Uh, YDSA and DSA chapters, and it's really through community organizing that we will have a voice. Uh, YDSA and DSA chapters. We're going to have to leave it there. It seems that the Dylan's voice has gone into a loop. Uh, Dylan Wabi and Alicia Colomer are co-founders of Sunrise NYU. Um, coming up, we go to Washington, where Hunter Biden has been indicted on gun charges. He is, it is the first time in history that the child of a sitting president has been indicted. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Well, federal prosecutors have indicted President Biden's son, Hunter, on felony charges, illegally possessing a handgun, making false statements in order to obtain a revolver in 2018. The charges carry a maximum sentence of 25 years in prison and fines of up to $750,000. The special counsel now, David Weiss, brought the charges after a Trump-appointed federal judge in July rejected a deal that would have seen Hunter Biden plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax counts in order to escape more serious charges. It's the first time in U.S. history the Justice Department has criminally charged the child of a sitting president. This comes as Republican lawmakers have opened an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. We're joined now by Ryan Grimm. He's the D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept. His Substack newsletter is titled Bad News. Upcoming book, The Squad, AOC, and the Hope of a Political Revolution. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Uh, First, talk about this well, it is a historic indictment. The first time um, the child of a president, he's hardly a child, but has been indicted. It, it is a historic indictment, but it's also kind of a letdown in a sense for, you know, for people who really want to see Hunter you know, thrown up against the wall because it's, it's kind of a ticky-tack charge. And it's kind of a charge that the right is going to want to see, you know, the Second Amendment absolutists are going to want to see thrown out. And Hunter's lawyers actually made this argument that, look, you can go ahead and and make this charge and you can probably get in a conviction in front of a jury because the facts are, every, you know, look, everybody's innocent until proven guilty. But it looks like he did fill out the form saying he wasn't you know, using drugs at the time that he was buying this weapon. And that was not true. He was. 
uh, you know, according to his own memoir or whatever, unless he wants to try to argue that in that you know discreet moment he wasn't using drugs. And so Second Amendment absolutists are going to say, look, there is no requirement in the Constitution that says you have to be sober uh, or that you can put any conditions or restrictions whatsoever on gun ownership. Now, I would argue that that kind of cuts against the whole idea of a well-regulated militia, but we're you know we're 200 years past that at this point. So you could easily yeah. see an appeals court toss mm. out this conviction, which would then lead to you know paradoxically or ironically an expansion of gun rights uh, at the hands of Hunter Biden. Ironically, I mean it's fascinating. You didn't see Republicans while they're disappointed that right. this didn't go deeper, and it's very interesting. The head of the Oversight Committee, Comer, who didn't wasn't able to come up with anything on President Biden yet. McCarthy has just announced, the House Speaker, that they are starting this impeachment inquiry against him, said this is probably the one charge that President Biden has nothing to do with. It is. That's true. Uh, there's no reason to think uh, that the big guy, as, as the right uh, calls him based on that, that email, that famous, a famous or infamous email, would have had anything to do with this whatsoever. It's the, it's the most cordoned off uh, crime that he would have committed. Everything else, you know, from the Republican perspective, has at least some kind of tangential connection potentially to President Biden, whether it's the tax charges and the, or the or the foreign influence peddling. This is just a, a messed up guy, you know, lying on a on a on paperwork to buy a gun that he wasn't taking drugs when, right. in fact, he said in his book that he was taking drugs. Um, so this right. actually is evidence from his own book. But as Abby Lowell points out. And as the Republicans would underscore in any other case, um, this is a violation, they are saying, of the First Amend- of the Second Amendment. So talk about the context in which this is happening and the opening of this impeachment inquiry uh, into President Biden. Um, do you feel that it has something to do with, well, as President Trump runs again for president, then he can say, you know, when people say the twice indicted president, Trump, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've all been indicted. Uh, we've all been yeah. rather we've all been impeached. And maybe this will become the norm that if the House of Representatives is controlled by the opposite party, there will be pressure from that party's base to indict the president if the president I mean, not to indict, uh, you know, to impeach the president uh, if the president is from the opposite party. So you could just, which which then kind of uh, strips it of a lot of its power. But yes, yeah, so what what basically happened is that it seems like Kevin McCarthy uh, got word uh, that Matt Gates was going to give an extended speech, his own indictment, so to speak, of Kevin McCarthy when they when the House came back this week uh, from its from its August recess. And say that he was going to, if McCarthy didn't live up to the bargain that was struck back in January, make a motion to vacate the chair, basically kick McCarthy out of his speakership. And McCarthy kind of uh, scrambled quickly to make this announcement that he was going to open an impeachment inquiry, but not send that to the House floor for a vote, which means that you know whatever moderate Republicans are left don't have to kind of don't have to walk the plank on an unpopular vote back in their kind of Biden supporting districts. Steve Bannon on his podcast said that it, it looked like McCarthy had bayonets in his back. And in fact, he did. And what he means is that people like Gates and Bannon kind of forced McCarthy in, into this position. And so the White House is saying, if you don't put this on the floor for a vote, what we can do is refer to the legal counsel memo written by President Trump's attorneys that say that if you don't, if the House doesn't vote on an impeachment inquiry, it's not an impeachment inquiry. 
Kevin McCarthy getting up in front of a bank of microphones and declaring it does not make it so. And so you have therefore not actually opened up the powers of impeachment yet. If you want to do it, you have to put people on record saying that they want to move forward on this. And is the reason he's hesitating to do it is he's afraid that even among the Republicans, he's not going to have the votes he needs. Because he only has a cushion of of around four votes. And so you one of them is George Santos, if that's his name. (laughs) That's right. Although Santos will do whatever uh, McCarthy asks him to do. Ironically, usually somebody from that district would be the kind that would be, you know, less willing to uh, to make a move against Biden if Biden uh, you know, was popular in that district. But because Santos has the problems that he has, he's, he's just doing whatever McCarthy says he does because his and, job depends and on And what McCarthy. happened yesterday, the meeting in the Republican caucus with the F-bombs flying and uh, um, the House Speaker McCarthy saying you can make an effing move for a motion um, as they want to unseat him, this leading to possibly a government shutdown by the end of the month? It's an incredible time for this to be happening, because, like you said, if they don't if they don't produce a continuing resolution or a or some type of spending bill by September 30th, the House shuts down. The House have been saying they don't want to do a continuing resolution. They want to do their own appropriations bills the way that the House is designed to work and pass all 12. They'll go through the House, go through the Senate, signed by Biden, normal functional government. In the face of that, they have two weeks to pull all that off. Yet they're spending all of their time you know, shouting at each other and saying they're going to impeach Biden and also throw McCarthy out of the speakership. So they're not going to pass their appropriations bills. They're also saying if you try to pass a CR, a continuing resolution that just keeps the government open, we're going to throw McCarthy out of the speakership. So the only two paths to keep the government open are those two paths. And the, and their dysfunction is ruling out uh, the former and their the Freedom Caucus is ruling out the latter. So it does seem like they are headed for a shutdown of their own making, like that they won't even be able to spin it in any serious way that that it was Democrats fault. Ryan Grimm, we want to thank you for being with us, D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept. That does it for our show. Happy birthday to Sam Alcoff. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, everybody. There's a lot going on. That's all I can say. And for the sake of, for the sake of love and compassion and forgiveness and mercy and for the sake of the whole of us, for the, for the oneness of the beingness of us, um, may peace prevail on earth. I just keep remembering that what the King of Swords told us is that uh, the Sara gets announced as as a simulcast with a declaration of world peace. That is a mouthful. What do you want to say about that, Rama? Right. <laughs> huh? Oh. Uh, may the violet flame bring it in. <laughs> and the emerald ray. Yeah. All right. Well, um, with that said, the emerald serpent feathered one is on his talking stick, Rainbird. 
with all the angels and the fairies and the feathers and the rainbows and the crystals and Menahuni and Sasquatch. Uh, we had, uh, what's the Sasquatch lady's name? Sing Del Noor was Ooh. in our report not too long ago here. She's a literal Sasquatch being. And she co co-pilots a starcraft, starship with the poppy lady. Mm-hmm. They've been doing that for what, five or six years now together? It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, may we have peace, everyone. And Rainbird, here comes this talking stick. I know it's ready for you now. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. I'm ready for that starship to come pick me up. <laughs> Me too. Don't forget <laughs> me. <laughs> oh, uh, got that image while you're talking about Queen Dolores. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that uh, uh, there's a lot of people out there that have been picked up now, all Stranger over the world. Have happened. What you say, honey? Stranger things have happened. Oh, like what, darling? Oh, like uh, them showing up right here. <laughs> oh, you mean right on the front uh, lawn there, the uh-huh. front uh, prairie there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that mesa prairie grass land there. All right, well, Rainbird, um, I did... Uh, did I get jabbery? Were you complete with your sharing with us? Oh, oh I'm good. I'm, I'm ready to listen to what Rama has picked out for us to enjoy at this time. All right, so Rama. What's that talking stick? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Rama? This is Ellen Watts, The Mystery of Sleep. The Mystery of Sleep? Yeah. Sounds good. Sleep. <laughs> Sounds good. And then you're going to play the second Aurora Ray after that? Yeah. This All is right. Nine minutes. Nine minutes. All right. Okay. Here mm-hmm. we go. Do you know that sleep is a very mysterious subject? <laughs> Scientific students of sleep are not yet at all sure what sleep is. (laughs) Apparently people need it, but nobody really knows why they need it from a strictly scientific point of view. And uh, we we apparently need to dream in sleep also. People who are deprived of dreams get very, very restless and unhappy. But we're not quite sure why we need dreaming. I mean, we've got all sorts of theories, the Freudians and the Jungians and so on. They think we know, they know why we need to dream. But it hasn't been really rigorously established scientifically why we do or why we need to sleep. But from a naive point of view, you can say, of course I need to sleep. Because after I've had a whole day of busyness and friends and work and so on, it's, it's too much. There's too much input. I want to digest it. And while I'm digesting it, I don't want any more input. I don't want any more information. 
so I want to be turned off. Uh, that's, you know, one of those simple common sense things that everybody knows, but uh, has not yet been fully explained. So sleep is this marvelous thing that we have, which is a forgettery process that is apparently essential to our psychic health every 12 hours or so. If you don't get it, you start getting worried. Uh, as a matter of fact, insomnia is a thing that is rather curious because if you do get insomnia, the, the worst thing of all to do is to worry about. Invariably, if I can't sleep, I don't try to go to sleep. I get up and work or do something. Or I read a very difficult book, especially one that is big and weighs a lot. This is a good way to go to sleep. But if you have insomnia, don't try to ever try to go to sleep. Nobody can try to go to sleep. Lots of mothers think they can get their children and they say, darling, try to go to sleep. Didn't your mother say to you, try to go to sleep? She wanted to get you out of the way. That was the only reason she said, try to go to sleep. Or she thought perhaps if she, it was good for you and that you ought really to get your sleep. Like telling some child that it's got to eat its spinach. Uh, this is a form of the double bind. No, you are required to do that which will be good only if it's done voluntarily. So go, try to go to sleep. It is impossible because it's a spontaneous activity and it can be helped, as we shall see when we come to consider torpor. But by and large, sleep is a spontaneous activity and is a way of turning yourself off to get away from the bombardment of awareness and forget because forgetting renews. And that also is a function of all demolitions, of deaths, of uh, destruction of patterns, of uh, knocking down buildings, of the whole change process in the universe. Because we want to do what we've done before over again, only if you remember it too often, it'll become boring. So if you forget, then you can do it again and it'll be just as amazing as it was the first time. And so there absolutely has to be a forgettery built into this universe in just the same way and for just the same reasons that there must be an eliminative process in the body as well as an eating process. And both are vitally important. And you see, we have very different attitudes to the two. Eating is something we do socially. Eliminating is something we do privately. Uh, eating we consider... We want the, 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 the all good smells and all that kind of thing. Eliminating is all bad smells and that kind of thing. But this is largely social conditioning that tells us this. But uh, nevertheless, these are the two sides of the game we play, and there's a spectrum between the two. So in the same way here, uh, you have to forget, just as you have to eliminate so that everything is renewed because it can happen again without being boring. Things that happen all the time in any way uh, begin to pass out of consciousness. For example, if there is a constant noise going on while we're talking, it will annoy us at first, but after a while we shall cease to notice it, if it's constant. But if it keeps varying, coming on in different volumes and different rhythms, it'll hold our attention all the time. So anything that just goes eventually cease to notice. 
So then, sleep is the renewer, because it's the state of forgetfulness. Still on metformin, although it was recalled? What if I told you there was a way to easily restore healthy blood sugar levels so you can get off it? Well, now torpor describes something approaching sleep. But this also is a valuable state because it's very comfortable. In sleep, you are not aware of sleeping. But in torpor, you are aware of the comfort of tiredness and uh, minified consciousness. It is a sort of pseudo-return to the womb. And so when after a hard day's work, people have been irritating and combative, you go home or you go to the local bar and you down a number of martinis, they turn you off and they put you into a state of near torpor or what is quite correctly and scientifically called by this learned and funny word, Narcosis. Narcosis. Uh, narcissus, you know, is connected with narcosis. It means. Reduced consciousness. Reduced sensory input. And the reason why narcissus is associated with narcosis is that narcissus when he saw his reflection in the water, didn't know it was himself. And he became so fascinated by this image in the water that he became uh, unaware of everything else. He got hung up, or shall we say, uh, to use current slang, hooked on his own image. And he didn't know it was his own image. That was the only reason he could get hooked on it. So narcissus and narcosis are associated. And so not the normal, the permissive narcotic in our culture is alcohol. And uh, other narcotics like opiates uh, exist. But you must remember that you can only correctly use the word narcotic or something inducing the state of consciousness, which is torpor. Now you can do it by massage, by relaxation exercises, by hot tubs, uh, many, many ways of inducing torpor. In torpor, you're not truly relaxed because you tend to lose muscular tonus, which you always retain in true relaxation. But you begin to go like a limp rag. Now there's a place for that in life. And it's good uh, as a in way of sleep induction for people who have insomnia and uh, are so anxious that they don't allow themselves to be turned off. I would want to say, in general, a good word for sleep and talk. Because a lot of people are against them. Uspensky, who was Gurdjieff's sort of St. Paul, right. always felt that his life was a war against sleep. That intense light consciousness should conquer darkness. Now that's a stupid idea. Um, to be a, a human being, you have to love the light, but you also must trust yourself to the darkness. Let yourself go. 
in the faith that uh, you'll arrive back all in one piece. Okay, it's a little late, but Rama's got a song, right? Uh, oh, maybe we could play that tomorrow. Yeah. Maybe because it's time for us to mm. do some sleeping. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank we love you. everyone. And until this afternoon, have a good rest and see you on the bridge. And Sat Nam. Sat Nam Ki. Aho. Itakuyasam. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart, and no evil. Aloha, everyone. Namaste. Namaste.